episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. Now, this is an episode with a difference. And I tell you what, it will be a welcome difference for my listeners, I am sure, as for the next couple of hours, you won't have to put up with my annoying voice infecting your ears, but instead you get to enjoy the dulcet Australian tones of Ollie Lovell speaking to US maths teacher, blogger and author Michael Pershing. So, what is going on here? Well, basically, Ollie nicked my guest. Hmm. More specifically, I'd intended to interview Michael about his wonderful new book, Teaching Math with Examples, but Ollie got in there first. And I tell you what, Ollie's interview on his outstanding Educating Reading Room podcast was so flipping good that I wanted as many people as possible to hear it. So, Ollie and I agreed that I would post it on my podcast feed as part one of a Persian double bill. And then the next episode after this in my podcast feed will be my conversation with Michael Persian that will directly follow on from Ollie's, but cover completely new ground and so will be part two. Does that make any sense at all? I hope so. So what is in store in part one of the Persian Double Bill? Well, Michael discusses his journey engaging with research as a teacher. He then describes his worked example process in detail. I particularly enjoyed the focus on the self-explanation prompts as a way to get students thinking harder about the worked examples and the way Ollie shared some of his from a sequence of lessons he delivered on Pythagoras and Michael commented on them. Absolutely brilliant, that. Perhaps my biggest takeaway was the justification for avoiding too much discussion and struggle over the basics of a procedure in favour of simply explaining it to students in the most clear way possible. Struggle of course is going to come and our aim is to ensure that struggle happens at as deep a level of thinking as possible. In other words, or at least my interpretation, explain now so students can spend time thinking hard and struggling with the more complex problem-solving elements of a learning episode. I found that really, really powerful, that. And I'll tell you what, there's so much more gold in this interview as well. So sit back and enjoy a couple of hours of engaging, deep educational chat without any annoying flipping X in there. And if you don't already, please subscribe to Ollie's Educating Reading Room podcast. It is so, so good. And I'll see you for part two. What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 51 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lowell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'll start today by acknowledging the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded, pay respects to elders past and present and acknowledge that colonisation and dispossession are ongoing processes. This episode, we're speaking with Michael Pershing. Michael is an incredibly passionate, informed, and prolific maths teacher and blogger in the US. When it comes to education research, Michael has a hunger for the truth that I really admire. This curiosity has led Michael down a multitude of educational rabbit holes in a way that's resulted in him being perhaps the best-read classroom teacher that I know. But equally as importantly, Michael 
is fun. He brings a wonderful youthfulness to his educational explorations, and his tweets always bring a smile to my face through their mix of incisiveness and humour. As an example, here are a few of Michael's characteristic tweets. Tweet 1. Thank God there aren't upper and lower case numbers. Tweet 2. For $1 million, I will share my money-making secret. Tweet 3. Robots will make terrific teachers as soon as people want to live up to the expectations of robots. I don't know how Michael comes up with this gold, but he does over and over again. These three tweets, for example, were all written by Michael within the space of three days. The reason why Michael is on the ERRR podcast today is that he's just come out with an absolutely superb book entitled Teaching Maths with Examples. If you're a maths teacher and if you think that you teach with worked examples, as I did, then this book will blow your mind. Even after writing a book on cognitive load theory and scouring the research on worked examples myself, the insights offered in Michael's book still offered fresh and valuable ideas and, as I say at the end of the podcast, this is the publication that has had the single biggest impact on my mathematics teaching practice to date. I can't recommend Michael's book highly enough and I hope that you enjoy hearing us discuss some of the finer points therein within this episode. Is this just an episode for maths teachers? It may seem that way, but I would argue that there are many ideas shared within that apply to all teachers. One of the fantastic things that Michael does in this book and in the interview is bring teaching strategies back to the principles that underlie them. Within our discussion, Michael particularly talks about the principles that underlie learning from examples, self-explanation and feedback. These ideas apply irrespective of the domain in which you teach. I'm also happy to share that this episode is brought to you by John Cat Educational. John Cat continues to pump out quality books on teaching and learning. One of their new books, hot off the press, is a new addition to the In Action series, Cognitive Apprenticeship in Action, edited by John Tomset. I'm really looking forward to diving into this one, as cognitive apprenticeship is an area I'd love to learn more about. In addition, you may like to get your hands on one of the books I've covered in the ERRR podcast over the last few months from John Cat as well, such as Tom Bennett's Running the Room, James Mannion and Kate McAllister's Fear is the Mind Killer, or Tom Sherrington's Rosenshine's Principles in Action. Also recently from John Cat is the book we're discussing today, Michael Pershing's Teaching Math with Examples. And for 30% off any John Cat title, just use the code ERRR30 at checkout. That's ERRR30 at checkout for 30% off. And that code will also work for my book, Cognitive Load Theory in Action. Now, without further ado, let's jump into episode 51 of the ERRR podcast with Michael Pershing. Michael Pershing, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. Lovely to have you here. All right, first question we always ask people, Michael, is if you meet someone new, Michael, and they say, hi, Michael, what is it that you do? What's your answer? Well, it's a very simple answer. In my case, I'm a math teacher. There's not a whole lot. It's a very, not a complicated job. My job is to teach children mathematics. The only thing that does get a little bit complicated is when I try to explain you know, typically people around here would say, oh, I'm a high school math teacher or I'm an elementary school teacher, or a middle school teacher. But I'm at a private school that, you know, has a kind of unusual setup for math classes. So the same group of people teach math to the children from third grade, which uh, around here is like, what is that, age seven or eight, eight or nine? I am forgetful and I'm sorry to my children, to the, <laughs> to the students. So from third grade to the end of secondary school. So. Every year it's different, but this year I'm teaching third graders, these you know little kids who are working on multiplication and stuff. You know, kids taking Algebra 1, their first Algebra class here, and then also Calculus to kids about to finish uh, secondary school and Geometry, high school Geometry for 
people to starting secondary school. So, so that's a little bit harder to explain when I talk about my job. But, but basically, I'm a mathematics teacher. I teach children. And because of my weird school, it's a couple different age ranges. But that's, that's my job. Cool. What do you believe should be the purpose of school-based education? That is a severe escalation from the first question. Correct. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's an interesting question. I'm, I'm of the opinion that there is not one single purpose of school-based education, that there's a couple. And, you know, that ranges from preparing students for their, you know, ability to get into college, to, to jump through whatever hoops our system sets up to get you into university. It ranges from that. It ranges, and then it goes, some students, what, another purpose is to prepare students who might have the desire and the facility to use this stuff professionally, to line to work, to prepare future mathematicians and physicists and chemists and doctors and all that jazz. And then there's also a certain amount of mathematics or knowledge, to speak more generally, that you need to be a, a well-informed citizen in a democracy to understand the paper, to engage in debates about political issues, to understand with some kind of critical ability to the news. There's also a certain amount of real life skills. So there's 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 too many purposes for education. And they're all they all have validish claims. And from my own perspective, I don't feel I feel that, that my role as a teacher is to try to I, I know that the people that I serve, the the children and the families and the school, some of them prioritize different aspects of this. So I kind of see myself and school more generally as these kind of compromise institutions, these things that have to do satisfy these different needs for different people. And we're trying to figure out something to do in school that kind of does as much for as many groups as possible. And it's not easy. Uh, sometimes there are schools or groups that manage to have the clarity that the rest of society doesn't have. And these groups say, well, no, the purpose of education is doing great on these tests. And then they can do very well on these tests. And there's, that's great because they have that clarity. But most people don't. So compromise is usually necessary. Okay. If we zoom in just to, to your classroom, because we're going to talk a lot about your maths classroom today, what are you trying to achieve in your mathematics classroom? Well, it's, it's here too. I kind of see myself as in a compromise position because, you know, I want to help everybody do really well on any exam, say, that they're ever going to face. I'm also interested in giving students you know, a valid understanding of what the field that I'm teaching is. And I'm also interested in equipping them with skills that they will find useful, you know, understanding important issues in the world. So I see myself, for me, the compromise mostly shakes out to I focus on skills and I focus on teaching kids skills that I think will serve them well in as many of these different arenas as you can. That, that's, that to me is kind of the big compromise mathematical skills that you really understand well will be useful to you in many of these different arenas. So it's a good compromise position, but this might come up later in the chat. I don't, I don't know, but at various times, this kind of perspective that I have means that I will do things in my classroom to satisfy these different potential purposes of, of education. Mm, those kind of skills you're talking about. Yeah, sure. I mean, skills are a form of knowledge. If you know how to ride a bike, that's, that's a skill and you know how to do it. So I just mean, I think most of mathematics, most of the mathematical knowledge that I'm asked to help kids get good at is skills-based. The ability to solve an equation is a process. It's a skill to be able to solve an equation, to be able to find the area of a figure, to prove a claim is a skill. Of course, there's, there's, there's what people sometimes call a declarative knowledge or knowledge 
of facts of various kinds or beliefs of, of knowledge of various valid and true beliefs that are important in all this, maybe a formula or a definition or a meaning or a fact such as nine times six equals 54. That's a fact that's useful. But overall, I think typically in mathematics, the goal is typically declarative knowledge is the procedural knowledge, the skills. Mm, wonderful. Now, I know you're someone who has read a lot of education research. And in the start of your book, about which we're talking today, you talked about kind of your journey and the, the different things that you've read at different times in your career. I'm, I'm interested for you to tell listeners a little bit about what that journey has been like and why you think your reading trajectory has followed or your reading has followed the trajectory that it has through education research. Sure. I started out reading research pretty much from the beginning. I was on my own as part of what that was. I, I didn't go through a teacher training program. I graduated college without a career or even a direction and ended up in teaching more or less by accident, which meant that I graduated and then a few months later I was teaching. So I went from never thinking about teaching to thinking about teaching all the time very quickly. And research and more broadly reading is how I tried to fill the gap. That The beginning of that process for me was I, I read popular things. I read Paul Tuff's book about, I don't even remember the name, Paul Tuff's book, what would, it was about charter schools and no excuses charter schools. And I had a, a nice chunk of research about education and learning kind of in there by accident. Oh, it was, um, it was about the Harlem Children's Zone. Anyway, that kind of nonfiction reading about education at the time, this was, I think, around 2010, 2011, Carol Dweck got a bunch of kind of very prominent write-ups in American journalistic press. There was a big piece in New York Magazine, I think, that I came across at some time. And so that was my path in. My path in was reading things about research in nonfiction. And then uh, I, I just went deeper because I just did. And I remember um, either the first or second or third summer after I started teaching, I went to the library, the local library, and I discovered that you can get a lot of research directly through my public library, through New York Public Library. And I kind of made a go at it. I started reading more. And right at first, it was kind of psychology, a lot of social psychology at first. Then I kind of made my way into math education. I read about feedback, which kind of bridges the gap in research between math education and psychological uh, experimental psychology. I read a lot about feedback. I made a little bit of a project out of that, trying to understand feedback as well as I could. I was very interested in the literature on conceptual understanding in mathematics and the sources of student errors, which brought me again, kind of in, in the interaction between math education, research, and psychology, experimental psychology. And it just kind of went from there. And that's it's been one of my coping mechanisms for the natural isolation that teachers experience in their teaching lives. The desire to talk about things that you don't understand in your own teaching, that it's not always easy to discuss with your colleagues, or they're not always interested in talking about some of those things. So so research has been an outlet for me and a chance for me to kind of have a conversation with someone, so to speak, beyond my class and beyond my school. Mm. Yeah, I really liked how you put it in the book. You talked about how you see reading education research as a conversation. I thought it was a, a lovely way to put it. I think at first I didn't realize that it could be a conversation. I was trying to listen as much as I could. But as I've gained more experience and I understand more, it's like any conversation. You learn that you've got something to contribute to the conversation. It's not just kind of the research that you can respond to research as a teacher and say, wait a second, <laughs> this makes sense, but, or I'm not sure about that. You can respond has been an important lesson. 
Yeah, and and I think the way you put it in the book was, and the way I've seen it as well, is like, for example, the methodology section of a research paper is basically someone talking about something that they tried in their classroom and then whether they thought it worked or not. So it is just like having a chat. Right, a very strange classroom, a fully controlled classroom where you're teaching maybe one student at a time in an empty room in a college, you know, empty college classroom or whatever, but a strange classroom, but but a valid one. It's a valid teaching experience. Of course, not all educational research is teaching research, but whatever, yeah, that's that's true, I think. It's true. It's how I think about it. There, there was another thing in the book that just the, the final kind of question or point on education research more broadly, you wrote the following. I read a lot of research on education, at least from a for a classroom teacher. I usually have a paper or two printed out in my backpack that I look forward to reading and thinking about. Occasionally, a teacher friend who knows about this habit will name some educational practice and ask me whether there's research for it. I never know exactly what to say. Often it turns out they're looking for research to help settle a disagreement with parents or school administrator. They want evidence that props up their case. That's a use of research I don't really believe in. Fair enough, good point. And I must say, this is kind of something that happens to me a little bit as well. I often have people come up to me and say, oh, what's the research behind this thing? And I, I know the subtext is like, help me make the argument for this thing. And it's a bit, so and it, it's a little, I mean, I don't want to encourage anyone from reaching out to me and saying, what's the research on this thing? Because I do enjoy the conversations, but there are times that it feels like they're trying to win an argument. How do you deal with that situation? Right. Sometimes the tell that it's an argument is it's very specific, the ask. It's like, is there any, it's the kind of thing that there really isn't evidence about because people don't study anything that specific. Like, is there any evidence that it's a good idea to ask fourth graders to figure out how to find the area of a triangle all on their own? That's not an area of research. That's not something people, I mean, I guess there's, there's research relevant to it, but I don't know if it's a good idea or not. I haven't seen what's going on. There's no real response Right. What, what, what this person is saying is I don't generally I'm looking for support. I'm, I'm looking for research to support my view. There's often research to support your view. Yeah, that's not that's not the right way to read research. The right way to read research is to try to listen to the many voices uh, that are coming through in the research from many different studies and in different contexts and try to make sense of it as a collective body of evidence. So there's no good satisfying answer in that case. I have no, what I, what do I say? I usually say something that's true, but is not helpful. And therefore the person will stop asking. I, I don't, my goal is not for them to not ask me, but, but as a natural consequence of me not being helpful and saying something like, that's not something that people study. There's of course evidence on this, but it is maybe complex and maybe will not strictly speaking support your argument in this very narrow case. Then again, I don't know, administrators, there are, there is a phenomenon that I'm aware of that people demand research for, for things that they shouldn't be demanding research for. And well, I mean, well, there's, why do people do this? They are trying to be research based and that's noble. But in reality, what it means is that research needs to be interpreted in context. And there's many areas that are not covered by research. And there are parents at times that I've experienced who have questioned an educational practice by saying, is this based in research? Which is, it, it's a hard question to answer because the answer is usually yes, but not directly and narrowly. Like I might have asked your child to sit where I asked them to sit, not because there's a study that told me to, but because I think that they get distracted by the birdie in the window or whatever. So part of the answer here is is to be aware of the appropriate times to ask for evidence and and when not to 
but if there are cases where people are asking for evidence and it's not appropriate, and so you just got to give people evidence, <laughs> you got to give people the, the means to defend themselves against an unfair call for evidence. So Cool. Today we're talking about your forthcoming book, which I believe by the time this podcast comes out should have just been released. Uh, and that's that, the title of your book is Teaching Math with Examples. Why did you think it was a good time to write a book about teaching math with worked examples? Because I was ready to. I'm not the kind of writer that looks out upon education and says, what does this world need? I'm a person that's very much responding to myself. And I've always, I don't know, this is a goofy thing to say, but I, I'm a writer. I, I like to write. So I was excited to be able to say, hey, I think I have a book here. Uh, <laughs> that said, I think my own journey with worked examples it makes the case for its relevance in education more broadly. I became aware of worked examples relatively late in the game for somebody that was as attuned to the so-called cutting edge in mathematics education as I was uh, from the beginning of my career. I, it, I felt, well, by the t here's my trajectory. I was very aware in my first, I don't know, three or four or five years, even though I never encountered education school firsthand, I was very aware of kind of the progressive arm of math education. Uh, these were the books that I read. This was a lot of the, the papers that I read were in math education research where, where progressive ideas about problem solving and inquiry and discovery are prevalent. And I did become aware of, of psychological research and uh, cognitive science research a little bit later, and I became aware of worked examples as part of that. I did a kind of a big dive into cognitive load theory some number of years ago, and I came into that more or less skeptical of worked examples, not because I was skeptical that worked examples were important, but first of all, because I thought I understood what worked examples were, and that it was easy to use them, and that I was already using them in my daily life as a teacher. Uh, because, of course, I explain things to kids. I use the chalkboard. What else really is there? And... That was the biggest surprise to me in cognitive load theory. Diving into cognitive load theory, the biggest surprise to me was that I misunderstood worked examples. I had basically gotten the wrong idea. First, I had misunderstood what they were doing in these studies. I thought it was just an explanation, what a lot of us would call modeling, just one person kind of explaining an idea and writing it down as they go. I didn't realize that these worked examples were fully solved beforehand and presented to students to analyze as a completed solution. I didn't realize that. I also didn't realize that the research was specific about better and worse ways of crafting these worked examples, essentially, that there were bad ways of doing it and better ways of doing it. And when I encountered them, my reaction was, oh, this is extremely insightful and very practical. I can use this right now. But to be honest, my further reaction was, I'm not exactly sure how to use this. Do I you know, stop class and hand out and just stop talking, like just show a worked example and just say, okay, so you've read it, let's go, now you know this thing. I didn't, I, I needed more. Then the next step in my learning was not through cognitive load theory, it was from a project, a research project with a curricular arm called Algebra by Example. And this is a great, this is, uh, this is a research project that I'm, of the kind that I'm very enthusiastic about. It's called Design-Based Something Research, uh, DBIR, <laughs> Design-Based interactive research? I forget. But the key idea is that it happens in a collaboration between practitioners and researchers. So essentially, in this case, there's a group called SERP in the US. And what, what they fund and what, they, uh, what this research project did was a bunch of researchers came to a school district and collaborated with the people in the school district, administrators, I think, to come up with an idea that would be useful. 
an idea that would be useful for them. And what they landed on was, well, there's these misconceptions that they're aware of, that their students have, would there be a way to address them? And they used worked examples, they, they used the worked examples research to come up with worked examples and for this district and they tested them with teachers and the classrooms refined them based on feedback and then posted them for free online. That's wonderful. The thing that they showed very clearly in this was that self-explanation prompts, these the, that you can ask kind of deeper questions about these and that can be useful for students learning. And that's a little thing, but it, it made it all kind of click to me. It, it helped me realize that there's this other, there's more you can do with these things. It's not just passively reading them and then moving on to some other problem. You can take a worked example, ask students to study it, ask questions about it, probing questions about it that, that push kids thinking and then give them a chance to apply it. And I'm a big fan of this idea. I think that teachers, at least in my experience in classrooms, that the me and my colleagues, we, we swap materials for classes. The basic currency of teachers it, are materials. So I, I, I love that I was able to learn from materials that these researchers produced and put out for free. I think that's a great way to teach teachers about research. So I learned from that and then I started tinkering. And then, then that was kind of my path into worked examples research. So I think that's what everybody is ready for. I think people are ready for a version of worked examples research that is bigger than just, okay, show a worked example and then your kids will be great. Mm. What was the kind of, just a, a quick answer to this one, what was the kind of time period between when you took the deep dive into cognitive load theory and realized that worked examples weren't what you thought they were to when you put together these pieces of the puzzle and thought, oh, I can use this info from SERP or this approach to actually utilize the benefits of worked examples as they represent in the literature? Okay. I did the cognitive load theory project when my son was, my oldest son was a baby. That was six years ago. And I think it all kind of came, my first experiments with algebra by example, kind of the SERP thing, were I think five years ago. So I think it took me about a year to chew on all this. I think about a year. Cool. Well, I've got to thank you, Michael, because as you know, I've just kind of released, or back in October last year, I released my own book on cognitive load theory. And Your I, excellent book. Thanks, thank I you. Can say, yes, thank you very okay. much. And, and, you know, from that exploration, I came out of that with many of the similar questions to the ones that you came out of your study of cognitive load theory with around what, you've, what we both then learned, the research said about what worked examples were, the fact that they weren't exactly what we thought they were, and then this kind of struggle of like, well, how do I mesh that with my classroom experience? And and the reason why I was so immensely excited when I started reading your book and I emailed you about it at the time was because you provided me with the answers that I'd been looking for by writing your book. I didn't even have to do that one year of exploration <laughs> myself. I mean, the, the, to be clear, I mean, I'm not saying, I'd say one year from like skepticism to to acceptance and then, you know, five years of learning about work examples. Yeah. So, so <laughs> I don't, I don't mean to say that I figured it all out in a year, but I do, I, that totally resonates with me that there, that there ought to be this moment for every classroom teacher. Once you kind of see what cognitive load theory says about work examples where you say, wait a second. Okay. So how do you make that work? Yeah, that's great. And so, I mean, the benefit for me then is even greater. You know, I've skipped those five years of, of the refinement and the <laughs> development of the process and what you've laid out, which we're, we're going to get into soon, is just such a fantastic routine for worked examples. I love it. So, one of the other things that I particularly liked about your book was at every point, 
or very, very frequently, you would really drive to the heart of the mechanisms behind how something works. You'd say, you know, this is worked examples and this is, this is actually how a worked example works and therefore this is how the routine follows. So if we just drive to that, what is the mechanism by which people learn from worked examples? People learn from worked examples the same way that they learn from solving problems, if it's new, you know, if, if it's something that they haven't encountered before. And that's thinking about a solution, a correct solution, a new and correct solution. So if I solve a problem that, uh, if you give me a problem to solve and I've never seen it before and I mess around and I tinker and it takes me some time and finally I land on a solution, where's the learning there? The learning is when I look at that solution, I think, oh, I get it. I think about this, I analyze it, I say, this is the solution. Here's why it works. And I, I'm, I'm able to kind of study that new solution and come up with a new way of thinking about math based on this new approach that I've landed on. And a worked example functions both theoretically in its learning and I think practically when I see it in a very similar way. It just cuts out that period of searching. So there's a solution, there's a problem, there's a solution, and we ask students to analyze it. And students learn when they think deeply, and we can talk a little bit about what it means to think deeply, but to think deeply about a new mathematical solution. And then everything else is trying to make sure kids are ready to understand that solution, and then that they really are thinking deeply. And by deeply, I can say a little bit more now, to, to, to think deeply about a solution would mean connecting it to things that you already know, uh, for one. And another is situating it this specific is a solution is a very particular thing, making a generalization on the basis of it. So saying this solution is not just the solution to this problem, it's a solution to all these problems. And the reasons why it works is this, and uh, that will apply to many other problems also. And that is what equips you to again, use the same solution to another one. And that, that's coming out both of, that's just to say, I mean, I, I always get worried when I say something with too much confidence, but that, that's an idea that I, I kind of, take from reading research and have put in my own language. Which is, again, something you do excellently in the book. It's written in a really quite a conversational and welcoming style that it was great for someone who's, you know, read a lot of this stuff in the academies that it's often presented in. It's like I could see the same ideas in the research that I'd seen, but you just put it into everyday language and it was just, but, it, but while still maintaining the integrity of the ideas, I, it was fantastic. So I've got to commend you on that. Thanks. You kind of did touch upon it there, but one of these ongoing debates in, in the edu twitter sphere and, and other places is this idea of you know whether explicit instructions better than kind of more exploratory or problem-based or inquiry approaches so could you just touch again you did mention it but it, people might have missed it what your understanding of how people the mechanism by which people learn from examples what that means for whether or not people can learn from problem solving or inquiry versus examples themselves uh, I was going to say it's complicated. It's both simple and, and not that complicated. And also there's some complexity. So the short thing is, is that I was saying a second ago, and I'll, I'll say it again here, is that fundamentally the way that we learn new mathematical skills, and there's maybe a generalization of this that would apply beyond mathematics, but, but whatever, is that we, there's something new and valuable to learn. And we see it and we think really hard about it. We make connections to our prior knowledge. We are able to fully understand it in its own context. And then we can make generalizations where we say, oh, it's not just about this, but this solution could be done with other problems. And there's general principles undergirding why it works 
so we can then apply it to other things. And then as we practice that, what we've seen in that example, and apply it to a new problem, we then make those generalizations that facilitates our ability to say this is a bigger thing than just this solution. So in my own kind of parlance, and I say this in the book, there's analysis stage where we study the particular thing and we understand it in its as much as we can uh, while we're reading it. There's an explanation stage where as we explain things to ourselves, we make generalizations and we say why things work and we make sure that we're thinking about each aspect of what makes the particular solution work. And then to facilitate further generalization, we then apply it to a new problem or to several new problems. And that's the, an ongoing practice. That, that's practice. So if that works for work examples, does that work also for problems that where a solution is not presented? So it's important not to caricature the variety of classrooms where problem solving or inquiry works. And so because there's a lot of different things. But if you're not presenting that solution, where's the solution coming from? So your first possibility is you're saying you're going to learn that solution from discovering it on your own and then thinking about it on your own and then explaining it on your own. You know, just do it all on your own. And that's hard. You know, nobody really does that. I mean, nobody really should. Nobody's serious. Even in the world of inquiry or problem solving would say that you should do that. What people do say is that you should do something a little bit more subtle. You should give kids a chance to discover it on your own. And then you should have a discussion of some sort. And what people will say sometimes is, yeah, the worked example is when you bring the class together and you ask one group to share what they found, that's the worked example. And then the whole thing starts there. So what can we say about this? Look, is that possible? Absolutely. And people learn in, in these types of classrooms frequently. I think what you can say what's fair is that that's a less surefire way to put people in contact with that solution. It's at the end of a long process, you might lose kids to the restroom or kids might get exhausted. If you're calling on a student group to present something, they might not do as good of a job as the seasoned teacher would. There's a lot of room for, for, for error there. So it, it's likely to be a less efficient learning process. I think you can say that. So does that mean that it's impossible to learn that way? No, I've taught many lessons. I don't really teach this way so often anymore, but it used to be my bread and butter was something like this when I was younger. And, you know, it works for a lot of kids a lot of the time. I just grew dissatisfied with it because you don't reach as many kids as you do when you present a solution. And you can also give kids challenging math problems to do after you've presented a solution. Presenting a solution is not a, it's not your only opportunity to give children interesting math to do, you know? It, it's the beginning of a process, not the end necessarily. And I'm, a, and I'm a fan of interesting math. I want to give kids a chance to think about, about interesting math. I just want everybody to be able to have a good time with it. And I don't want to lose people or lose the most important new solution that I want to share with people from doing it. So the short answer to the question is like, how does this work for, for inquiry or problem solving is it could work as long as students are learning from reflecting and uh, analyzing a solution and explaining it to themselves and then applying that solution to a new problem. I just think that's much harder, especially at the beginning of a unit or beginning of a new topic when you take these other approaches. But that doesn't mean that there's no room for problem solving. Mm. It just means that at the beginning, you want to, you know, err on the side of, of sharing ex solutions. Mm. Yeah, that's great. So one thing you said there that I'll really take away is, you know, providing a solution at the outset isn't the only opportunity we have to give our students challenge. And this is this is something I've been thinking about a lot a bit recently as well. I've been in some contexts where some teachers have said, you know, you're not, you shouldn't 
explicitly teach students you should let them struggle because like struggling is a really important part of learning and to that similar to you my response was i agree but we need to pick the level at which they struggle we can have them struggling to do the very most basic kind of procedure or we can keep teaching that procedure and then have them struggle at a higher level. Um, and that actually, did you want to say something? About that? Oh, no, I, I, this just resonates with what I hear as well. Mm. Absolutely. In, in the United States, the buzzword is productive struggle. Okay. Uh, I don't know if it's there in Australia also, but but the, the buzzword here is productive struggle. That, of course, struggle is important, but there's unproductive struggle. But you would want to encourage you want you want to facilitate productive struggle. Now, this is always a term that has bugged me a little bit because it's basically saying, oh, well, don't do bad struggle. Struggle's good, but do the good struggle, not the bad struggle. What is good struggle? What is what makes struggle productive for students? I would argue that something like work with examples is what makes struggle productive. As you if you have a challenging problem that you kind of know a quarter of your class is going to find so hard that they're not going to make much progress on it. And I think that honestly, we, we usually know that then what you can do. And usually the way you, you kind of plan for that is you say, you know, well, what's the hint I'm going to give kids? I, I they'll, they'll get stuck. They'll, have, they'll raise their hands, ask for help. I'll come over and give them a little hint to nudge them along the way. So just teach that hint in the context of a different problem first. That's what I would say. I would say if you know that you're going to have to offer a hint to a lot of kids, make sure, you know, find a way to express that hint in a worked example beforehand. Make sure everybody knows the hint really well. It's usually a strategy, you know, micro skill. You know, I, I want you to be able to cut up this shape, know how to cut up shape. So teach that in a totally different problem. And then this challenge will be a chance to apply it in a new looking thing that'll still be hard, but more people will be able to even have a way to begin it. Uh, when you walk over and you say, remember that problem that we did before with the cutting and the drawing of the lines and the shape? That might be useful here. They might actually know what you mean. Uh, so I think I think that you can make struggle more productive if you kind of front load more things. And I think that worked examples are a great way to front load some of that learning. Mm, yeah. And, and another thing to link through here, I was having an email correspondence with Alexander Renkel and he wrote me a long email. And oh, he wow. Said, yeah. Great, great guy. He, he said, Ooh. like, he wrote me a long email and he said, I'm not sure if all that makes sense. You're likely still confused, but hopefully you're now confused at a higher level. <laughs> and I thought, I thought, you know, and he said, you know, that's, that's always the, the goal is always only to get confused at a higher level because we always will be confused. It's just the level at which we can be confused. So I guess by you saying, teach the hints first, then just give harder questions than the students would have been able to handle in the first place. What we're actually facilitating there is facilitating and helping our students to get confused at a higher level. That's right. I think if you only ever, the kind of, uh, not cliche, but the, uh, the caricature of worked example classrooms is that it's dull and boring and dry and it's just worked example application worked example application worked example retrieval practice mixed practice you know another worked example test uh, and now it, and yeah test and now uh you know all right next unit yeah there are classrooms of every philosophical position that look like that you know it's not it's important not to pretend that everything is going terrific in math education by people who use worked examples there's a lot of bad teaching out there but that's not what the worked example research i think points you towards necessarily i think it points you towards as we were kind of saying these underlying reasons why people learn from worked examples and these studies more often than they do when they're asked to solve equivalent problems and then the 
as we kind of think about why that is and we research why that is, we end up with these kind of principles of learning that are genuinely useful and can be used to, to help more kids learn more stuff and then try more problems. Well, let's get let's let's get into this. Let's get into the nitty gritty. So, your book really centers around this routine that you've established for teaching with worked examples. And let let me just I've kind of broken it down into nine steps. This is just something I did to try to help my myself understand it. Maybe I'll share with you those kind of nine steps. Actually, I'm going to turn into eight steps based upon a short discussion that we had. But let me also say, based on some other research, right? There's some research that says when you've got a complex procedure, that it's useful to break it into subcategories. And before you, this comes up in the chapter uh, on designing worked examples that I have later in the book. Mm-hmm. I forget how to pronounce his name. Cretambrone uh, or something like that. Chetambro, yeah. Anyway, so let's give the kind of headlines here. You want kids to be able to understand the worked example. So there's some prior knowledge that you might want to activate. And then there's a chance to silently study the worked example itself. Then there are self-explanation prompts that kids can think about on their own or discuss with partners or write down. We can discuss as a class, but there's self-explanation prompts. So go from the beginning. We got got prior knowledge. We've got analyzing a work example. We've got self-explanation prompts. And then there's an application process where there's a new problem to apply. Those are the four four major steps. And then you should run through to make sure that we're on the same page about the the smaller steps. Mm. But but that's the big picture here. Okay, so yeah, the, the four steps you said there were activate prior knowledge and, you know, help students just kind of get oriented towards the kind of problem, analyze the worked example, self-explanation and application. So yeah, as, as a novice in this domain, I, I found it helpful to further segment them to try to Absolutely. Help, help myself understand what was going on. So, so you often do a warm-up question, but not always. That's step one. And that's, and that's trying to activate prior knowledge. Exactly, exactly. Number two is students see and read the kind of what I would call the I do question or the, the, the work that worked example. So that, sorry, they just read the question often. You don't actually re- really answer. And that's because so, you want to make sure that they actually understand the question that's about to be answered. Then you'll, from what I understood, you'll reveal the solution. You usually use like a document camera, reveal the solution and students can analyze that. So this is like they're silently sitting there. They're, they're just reading it. And that, that's what happens. Then you give them some time to kind of pair share and talk about what they've seen, see if any questions come up for them or anything like that. That's step four. Then only after that do you actually reveal the self-explanation prompts, which we'll go into in a bit more detail in a minute, and you let them... Do you, do you, do you, do you make them think silently about the self-explanation prompts as well, or you just Not let them usually, talk no. about them straight away? Talk about yeah, them straight away. Yeah, they're already with partners and talking, so, you know. Okay, fair Usually, enough. yeah. And then, then you'll call on students to share their answers and then you'll kind of they'll move into some independent practice is that pretty pretty that sounds right that sounds exactly right all right let's i love the process and i've actually so i read i've just i've just changed schools and i've got year nine students for the first time i've never had year nines before except from my teaching rounds so you know i've been teaching them pythagoras and i've actually been using this approach for almost all of the examples that i've done this whole year for we're in week four or something like that for this whole period and it's just been it's just been great so this is just for me i'm i'm so grateful to have this opportunity to talk to you about this michael because i've really been diving into it um and i do have some questions but also we'll we'll be able to cover some questions for for listeners as well so in terms of starting with a warm-up question how do you decide on kind of what warm-up question to to do yeah so so the goal is for students to understand the solution right kids don't 
if my goal is for kids to learn from the solution, you know, they don't learn from the warm-up example directly, right? So, but my goal here is what I think of as notice and remember. So there might be things, you know, the worked example might be very complicated. The diagram involved in the problem might be awfully complicated. I think an example from the book that, if I recall, sometimes this, I feel this way when I'm teaching graphing lines for the first time. There's just so much information that I forget that kids aren't aware of in the graph. There's there's all this stuff. There's letters there. There's these boxes. There's these marks. There's a lot of stuff to notice. And a lot of it's important for understanding the solution. You know, that these, for example, that this point over here that I want to refer to, that its coordinates are seven, like, you know, seven, ten. Students, I might want to make sure that kids notice all the stuff about the graph in order to understand that that point is at that location. And I might be worried that students will not understand the worked example unless they notice that stuff. So I want to make sure that they notice it. So I might have a warm-up problem where I make sure to help students notice that. Likewise, there's sometimes situations where a worked example relies on a previous routine. I was thinking about Pythagoras because uh, you mentioned uh, before this that, that you're teaching it. And there's these steps. Sometimes when you're studying Pythagoras, you have to uh, solve an equation that's like, you know, c squared equals 10. You might have taught that some time ago, or students might have been supposed to know that from a previous year, but you might be worried that they don't. And you might be worried that they won't understand the worked example unless they remember that. So you might say beforehand, like here's an equation, c squared equals 10. What's the solution? Write it down. Let's talk about this. Great. We're actually going to use this really soon. Here's a problem, and I'm going to show you the solution, and we move to the worked example. So the, the goals of a warm-up in this routine are helping kids notice anything that they will need for the worked example or remember anything that they previously learned, a, a procedure or a skill or a fact that they will need. Mm, that's great. So notice notice something that or it's going to help them notice something they need to notice in the worked example or remember something that a tool or a skill, as you mentioned before, that they're going to need to, to use in the worked example. Wonderful. So the next thing is students see and read the actual question themselves. Is there anything you want to comment on about how you reveal that question or anything like that? I mean, it, this is just advice. This is not like, this is this is just me sharing advice. So this is take it or leave it, right? But I often find that it's a bit much for kids to have to read the question and the solution. Their eyes might move too quickly from the question to the solution. There might be weird words in the question that students might want to ask about. Also, some kids might have ideas from when they just see the question. I think that's good for learning. I, I, I don't have evidence for that really, but it makes sense in my kind of overall view. If some kids are ready to try a problem in their head quickly, that can be a valuable thing to give them a little bit of space to do. And it can be kind of a little fun little thing. Like you have an idea and then you see a solution and you might get surprised at times. You see students who are like, oh, that's a really good idea. I didn't think of that. And other times you're like, that's what I was thinking. So it, it can be valuable, I think, to slow down and show the question just on its own for a minute, not even a minute, a couple of seconds, really, before you show the solution. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. That, I, I must say, I think I've only, I only did that like once in the sequence of teaching um, based upon your approach, but I think I should do that more. It makes a lot of sense. And even something like, I was just thinking then, say we've been teaching our students how to find the hypotenuse for like in the previous lesson and the next lesson we're going to show them how to find one of the shorter sides using Pythagoras even just showing up that question and maybe asking something like you know here's another question what's different about this one compared to what we've been doing so far that's a prompt to notice the difference and then kind of get the students thinking absolutely I would only urge caution you don't want to end up 
you know, with a long discussion at this stage, right? You've got the solution right there. That's how the learning is going to happen. We don't want to have a long conversation, but a short one. Yeah, that's, you know, that could be really valuable. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. Um, I was actually, I was thinking more just not even getting student responses, but just saying, oh, yes, I want yes, you to yes, think yes. to yourself, what's different about this question compared to what we've Absolutely. been doing here. That sounds great. Students analyze the I do solution independently. What's the, so you've just, you've shown the question, you've just revealed the solution. What's happening in the classroom at this point? Well, it's absolutely silent, ideally. I think, you know, this might be confidence, overconfidence rather, but, but I think that I can tell when things are going well at this stage, even though it's silent in the classroom. I'm not, I'm asking, I'm saying, please be quiet and just look at this solution and read it really carefully and explain each step to yourself. I do a little bit of prompting there. I want you to read the solution now, read each step to yourself, put a thumb up when you've gone all the way through it. Even if you don't understand every step yet, give me a thumb up when you're all the way through so that I know that you're ready for the next stage. I think I know when that's going well, because there's a difference between, this is just like a weird thing. This is like weird teacher knowledge, but you can tell when, when eyeballs, like people's faces look different when they're thinking and when they're not, right? When people are looking up at that, up, up at the board or the screen or whatever, and they're thinking really hard, their eyes are in the same place. They're, they're not really, they're, their brains are working. The rest of their body is kind of just doing its thing. When people are done, they make this kind of very like vi visual. I, I don't know how to like show this audio, but like, like kind of like a deflating, like, all right, all right, all right. And then they kind of like, their attention, they might still be silent, but they're, they're no longer kind of like extraordinarily focused and thinking hard. And you can see that. So it's silent in the room, but that's actually, I want to give that silent space. I want to give people a chance to think. I'm prompting them to think. I can kind of see if they're thinking based on their physical manifestations of their thought. It's not perfect. I don't know what they're thinking. It's, very, it's highly imperfect. But I'm, what I'm doing is I'm giving some time, not a ton of time. I'm not betting the bank on this. I don't know if that's a phrase in your neck of the woods. But I'm not, I'm not saying it's going to work at this stage, that they're gonna, all going to learn it from just quietly reading this thing. But it's a chance to quietly think and to, and to see what you can figure out. And I think I have a good sense, roughly, of whether people are doing that. Mm. I would say that this is probably the biggest game changer part of this approach compared to what I usually do or what I usually would have done. So just to contrast this to what the majority of teachers, the math teachers I would expect do, rather than having the solution pre-worked, they would actually work it on the board or on their iPad or while it's going or on their document camera or something like that. The thing is, and you know, in this period of a couple of weeks that I've been using your approach, I've worked a couple of examples like I traditionally would have. And what I've noticed is I'll be working an example and I'll look up and kids' eyes are just everywhere. Some of them are concentrating, some of them are doodling, some of them are looking out the window, some of them are chatting and I haven't noticed. But with your approach, because the, the, the answer has already worked, it's on the screen and all, I can actually, I don't even look at the answer, I just look at the whole class and I say, all right, everyone eyes on the board analyzing this solution. I can see, just like you said then, how many of the students are focused and if they're not, it's just, Harry, eyes on the board, thanks. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's it, amazing. It's, it's partly, you can think about it as a classroom management thing. You can think about it as a attentional thing. You can think about it as a clarity thing, right? You can think about it also as, I mean, these are all connected things. So a lot of classroom management has to do with giving clear instructions that are related to learning that are attainable. As you're slowly writing something out, it takes time and it's dead time a lot of that time. You're waiting 
And so I think attention drifts. It's less clear. I think I, I agree with your experience. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, it's been such a game changer for me, and especially you know, year nine students and notoriously you know hard to control, distracted, distractible, and things like that. Just to have that ability to to actually monitor their focus during that key phase when they're meant to be studying that work example, it's it's been super powerful. So yeah, one of my favorite parts of the routine. I'm glad you felt that. By the way, because of my weird teaching life. Year nine students are not the most wiggly students that I teach. Okay. I teach younger students, you know, six years younger, year three, I guess. And I totally find that clarity and, and succinctness is important for them as well. So this is, I think, useful for my elementary teaching life also, my primary school teaching life. That's great. I mean, here's another question. Have you taught a few students using this approach in a number of consecutive years or something like that? I must have. I must have. Because I sometimes teach year three and year four, fourth and third grade here, and eighth and ninth grade. So, so the answer is yes. I have students in my class, in my year nine class that I had in year eight last Cause, year. Because my question is like, because I was on Craig Barton's podcast recently, and he was like, oh, he asked me about worked examples from the cognitive load theory perspective, and then he kind of was like, what do you think about silent teacher versus Michael Pershing's approach? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I, you know. No favorite children. I talked about the benefits of age. I do too, by the way. Yeah, I, I, there's, you did in the in book, the book well. I, I do say I'm very ecumenical. Is that the right word? I don't know. But I sometimes use Craig's silent teacher approach also. I'm I'm very much a uh, an easygoing person as long as it's in the spirit of, of the justification of the research. You know, there's more than one valid way to take research and, and, and interpret it in a classroom. That is something I believe so deeply. So I love Craig's stuff. Craig, 100%. Craig you're, if you're out there, I love what you do. Really, I do. <laughs> we'll let him know. I love silent teacher. 100%. So, so one of the benefits of silent teacher, which for people who aren't familiar with that, is basically the teacher just working the worked example um, in science, not actually narrating it in the first phase at least, and students watching that answer progressively be revealed. One of the benefits of that is it kind of manages that cognitive load for the students because you're revealing it line by line. So that's a benefit. But in some ways, it's also a cost because it is actually a key skill for students to learn how to read a fully worked example because because obviously the text textbooks or paper textbooks aren't animated, and so they have to be able to face a fully worked solution and, and deal with that. Have you found that using this approach better prepares your students to work with traditional textbooks? I wish I could say that the answer was yes. I don't really know. I really don't. I mean, there's that, that's the kind of big skill that it's hard to see, and it, it's it's I don't I don't have a good sense. I also, as a teacher, this is just my own biases, but I I don't. Students are so, what's the nice way to say this, inconsistent in their ability to learn from textbook examples that I do not often, again, what's the nice way to say this, rely on that as a teaching expectation. So I don't, I don't know because I don't, I don't really ask kids to do a lot of the heavy lifting by reading textbook examples on their own. I'd like to think that there is something that kids gain from that. But that's not why I teach this way. I've talked to Craig about this, and he does see that as an advantage. And I like that. I like that idea. I find it attractive. I don't know if, if it's true. I hope it is. But the reason I teach this way is not so that kids will have the experience reading mathematical text on their own. Though that's kind of nice. I like that idea. Once once he pointed it out, I was like, hey, that's that sounds good. I, sh I, should, I should do that. But really the reason I do it is more for the reasons that you say. It's for the clarity. It's for the ability to, to have the kind of a, a, a complete whole, a mathematical whole thought. 
that we can talk about. Then again, Craig's approach with where it's it's kind of modeled out slowly, I find that useful too, especially as the material gets complicated because there's a lot of complicated material that it's hard to um, make a succinct example for. And sometimes I forget to have a worked example and I, I, I didn't prepare one beforehand and I need to make one up. So I love Craig's approach. I prefer mine, but not for that reason. Not for that reason, yeah. I appreciate your honesty, Michael. Appreciate that. Yeah, it would be good to have the evidence that, that, that it helps the students read more independently, but something to, to study further requires more research. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so we've show, we've done a warm-up question. We've let the students read the, the original question. We've let them silently analyze the worked example, and we've watched their eyes to make sure they are focusing. And now there's a time for students to kind of have some pair sure or some talk time around what they've seen. How, how do you run this part of the, the lesson? It's interesting because pair share is, I don't know, I, I don't want to say it's controversial in some educational circles, but it is, right? It's, it's asking students to talk with each other. Uh, which will often present some, you know, classroom management problems that teachers need to deal with at times because there's not total control of the whole class, you know, situation, whatever. Here's what I'm trying to do there. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to make sure that every student has explained this carefully. I've only asked students to think about it to themselves so far. I would like some evidence that they are thinking about it carefully in a way that I can hear and see more more visually and orally. So that's what I'm doing. I'm also trying to give students a rehearsal opportunity. I care a lot about the social environment and I care a lot about my students who are who see themselves as I mean every year I get some students who at the very beginning of the year say, by the way, Mr. Pershing, just so you know, I'm really sorry, I'm awful at math. I'm just terrible. And that breaks my heart. I don't want anyone to feel like that. I don't need I don't need every student to feel like they love math. I need every student to feel that they are not beaten down by school, that they're not, that they belong in, in, in the room where they are, that they're not less than anybody else. So how do you do that? Well, one way that I do that is by trying to catch students when they are able to give smart explanations and I give them an audience to do so. I think that that's an ennobling thing to do in the social environment of the classroom. So part of what I'm doing is I'm trying to hear who I'm going to call on later. Who am I going to call on? And very often, what I'm looking for are students who would not be able to share ideas when it comes time to share a novel solution or share a solution to a tough problem or not to ask the question that's going to get a lot of praise because it, it kind of makes a connection between two very different things that we it, or, or it's a what if question that's very brave. This is an opportunity for my students who are either shyer or less confident or self-identify as being terrible at math to, to be smart. So I'm, I like this as a rehearsal opportunity. It's not the only reason why I do this, but it's one of the reasons why I very much like this. I also keep it relatively short. This is not a huge investment of time. But the goals of this kind of pair share thing are really have make sure everybody's explaining stuff carefully. Try to listen in and get a sense of for my you know how things are going for myself to assess more clearly whether students are understanding things well or not. And then also to try to hear who I'm going to be able to call on later. And maybe I'll get lucky and I'll be able to give one of my students who doesn't usually get a chance to share something, a chance to share that. Mm, that's that's great. A lot of commonalities there with, between what Doug Lemov was saying about cold call as well. He was saying that he saw cold call as a really fantastic way to listen for students who maybe lack that confidence, listen for when you've said get lucky and listen for when they've really got something valuable to contribute and then call on them at that time to let them shine. So that's, that's really, really interesting. Right. 
It's cold. It's it's the opposite of cold call in some ways, though, because I it's cold call after. Right, I will cold call, but I gather information first about who I want to call in because I I don't. I mean, I'll sometimes cold call in other situations also. But what makes this kind of the opposite in some ways of, of cold call is I'm gathering intel uh, during while kids are talking, and then I'll say, I should call on on that child. I should. I, they're going to say something, and it's going to be smart. Mm. Great, I'm going to do that. <laughs> Totally. Well, yeah. So that's that's. So before I chatted to Doug, I thought that that seemed like the opposite of cold call as well. But he actually saw that as a key part of cold call. Oh, good. So okay. that was interesting. That's and good. and he saw what I do, which is actually a lot of the time use pop sticks to call on students. He saw that more as as a pepper strategy, um, which is interesting. But yeah, yeah. Okay. maybe we should maybe we should rename what you've just described there and call it warm call or something like that. My, my oh, own. is that is that what Doug calls it? No, that's, I just made that up then. Oh, I, I like it. Yeah, that could um, that could uh, capture that idea of highlighting students um who need that that confidence well. So I I, actually, I reckon that for for some people who read your book and try this routine, this could be kind of the part where where they they come unstuck. This this pair share part, and they they go, oh, I tried Michael's book, but every time I just kind of gave the students the pair share opportunity the class would just get out of control and take me a minute for them to get focused again. So it didn't really work for me. Do you have any advice about how to how to bring things back together? Oh, I mean, if you can't do that, don't do that. <laughs> you don't need me to tell you that. If it's not working, change it. My whole, I say this a lot in the book and I believe it really strongly. This is not, I am not saying, this is, this is what I do in my classes in a couple different contexts based on my read of the research. This is not prescriptive, right? This is, this is, I share this as an exemplar that's meant to, well, if it's useful, go ahead and use it. But it's supposed to illustrate various more general teaching principles. So if the pair share doesn't work in your context, then the question for you is, that's fine. You know, how are you going to make sure that every student is thinking carefully about the example? How are you making sure that every student is explaining things to themselves about the example. You know, how are you finding ways to call on people and uh, to ask people to share who you don't hear from all the time that are not the most confident students? You'll have your own answers to that. I share this in the spirit of here are the right questions to ask and here's how I answer them. I mean, I will I mean, pair share is, I think that one thing about pair share though is the more focused it is on a specific goal, it, it goes better for me, right? When, I, when I've seen pair share go wrong in my own teaching, it's because it's been unstructured or vague instructions. Like, I want you and your partner to talk about this problem. Yeah, 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 I'm not, yeah it makes sense that that doesn't work so well. I, would, I, I think that if you can make this more specific, I'll, I'll just share my, the prompt that I give, but I think the general principle is, 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 you know, go and get more specific and more structured if you are having trouble managing it in the classroom. But the way I do it is this. I say, okay, you've just been studying this silently. I've already assigned your pairs beforehand, so you all know them. You and your partner should take turns explaining steps in this example. And then when you're both happy with what the example means, you should answer the questions that I then reveal. And so there's questions to answer, and that provides some structure also for the pair share. They need to answer these three questions. They'll ask, do I need to write them? You can write them if you want. You don't have to write them. You can just discuss them, make sure you're discussing, make sure both people are talking. We'll be back in a minute or whatever. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Uh, have you ever have you ever found your, you mentioned your wiggly year three students before, are they sometimes hard to get back together or, or is it pretty, pretty well under control? It's interesting. I feel like the difference between my, my year three students and my year nine students is it's hard to get them back sometimes because they really like talking about stuff. It's less that they're off 
task sometimes more that they're just spending a really long time talking about things. There's also more likely to be interpersonal issues sometimes with the third graders. Like they, he, he doesn't want to talk to me. So I would say in general, there's more issues in general with my year three students than okay. <laughs> with all aspects of kind of managing learning. Cool. But no, you're, you're right. I, this is this is something that is skippable. I like it. But if it doesn't work for you, you shouldn't do it. Cool. Maybe maybe I can propose a little addition to the routine here. Let's hear it. Because I was when I was playing lessons based on this approach, I had the thought, you know, it may be hard to get the students back after this pair share time. And so I thought back to some of the conversations I've had in the past, and I remembered from talking to John Hollingsworth of um, Explicit Direct Instruction Frame fame. Um, he really emphasised the value of having an attentional cue. So having something the teacher says something like you know one two, and then the students say eyes on you that you actually train the students so that you can bring them back really, really quickly. So because I was doing this right at the start of the year and I was with a new year group, I actually trained with my year nines, I trained an attentional cue, which is that I say in our class and they say punctual, polite, prepared, which are the classroom expectations that I kind of outset right at the start. Um, and I actually just trained that like the very, very first thing I said in this class, you know, working with the class, said a little bit about myself and the fact that, you know, my, my goal this year was to help them work with their learn, learn mathematics and gain confidence and, and competence in mathematics. I said, you know, we're going to talk a lot in this class. We're going to do pair shares and what that means is I need an effective way to bring us all back together. So I'm going to say in our class and you're going to say punctual, polite, prepared. And I wrote those three words on the board and I said, let's say it together. Three, two, one, punctual, let's say it together. Three, two, one, they said it together. And I said, all right, now just talk to the person next to you in your library voice for about 30 seconds about what you did in the holidays. Then I'm going to say in our class. And as soon as you hear that, you're all going to say punctual, polite, prepared. And so we did that like three or four times till they could all do that. And then later on in the lesson, when we did the worked example, when I gave them the pair share, then I was able to use that attentional cue and it was like immensely effective. Oh, that's great. Yeah, got them back. And, you know, in that practice phase, the first time it took like, I, I actually recorded it and it was like the first time it took them 14 seconds to be quiet. The second time it took them 11 seconds. The third time it took them four seconds to be quiet. And I, and I told them that I was like, okay, class, you know, that took 14 seconds. Now we're going to practice it again. We're going to try beat 14 seconds. And then we got down to four. I said, that's great. We can get it. You've shown me you can do it under four seconds or under five seconds. So let's always just aim for that five seconds. And, you know, now that we've had a couple of weeks, there have been times where I've got a bit slack and it's taken, you know, 15 seconds or something to get them back. And when that happens, then I'll get them to practice it a few times and tighten it up again. So that might be something that you, you can add and others can add to this routine for if they're having that issue of getting the class back together again. Dear listeners, if you're finding this discussion with Michael stimulating and useful, and if you'd like to be able to easily refer back to and remember some of the most valuable takeaways from our discussion, why not consider becoming a patron of the ERRR podcast? Patrons are listeners who contribute a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show and, in exchange, receive a summary each month of the key takeaways from that episode. Patrons also receive access to an interactive transcript of each episode, meaning that if you'd like to listen back to a specific part of the episode, you can simply do a word search for a key term, then be taken directly to the spot within the podcast that you're looking for. And then you can listen back from that point. In this month's summary for patrons, I'll also include my rundown of Michael's worked example routine in detail. It includes key things to remember at each step, a summary of the attentional cue approach that we've just been speaking about, and the complete sequence of four lessons that I created on teaching Pythagoras' theorem based upon Michael's worked example routine. 
and discussed more in the following sections of this podcast. So, if you'd like a memorable summary of this episode of the EEEE podcast, an interactive transcript, a set of lesson plans for Pythagoras' theorem using Michael's approach, and if you'd like to support the ongoing production of the show, then go to patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R and sign up to support the show for as little as one US dollar per month or the average donation of five US dollars per month. That's patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R to support the show and help to keep it sustainable for the long term. Now. Back to this episode of the ERRR podcast with Michael Pershin. That's great. A lot of primary teachers have little like bells or chimes that they sometimes use also for similar purpose. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a good idea. I, I end up sometimes like standing with my hand up in a very visual place. And I like your idea also. It's in some ways more active and more, I don't know, loud. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and I originally thought of like a clapping thing, but I realized that if I get them to actually say something, then they can't be talking, they can't continue their conversation say because they're things, saying yeah. the thing. Yeah, yeah, and so I mean, I wasn't doing this originally with my year twelves, but then I found I was still having the issue even with my year twelves of them being sufficiently focused and bringing them back. So I just did a new attentional cue, which for them is I say founded in, and they say eighty two, which is the year that the school was founded in so it's like that's a school cool. pride kind of a thing and that's more age appropriate for the year 12s i was a bit worried about introducing it because i was like oh they're not going to like this and i got them to practice it but actually they seem to love it so th- oh that's great figure. yeah it, this is this is where context is going to change things quite a bit in the specifics but the uh the overall idea of having an attentional cue to transition out of louder things to more silent things is it's, it's an important teaching idea. So you're, you're right to bring it up. Mm, cool. All right. So that's the, the pair share and we're, we're going through the steps at a, at a good pace here. So let's continue on to the next, the next idea, which is the self-explanation prompt. So again, to recap, just for listeners, because they haven't got it written in front of them, warm up question, students read the, the question, students analyze independently the work solution, students do a pair share, and now you actually reveal these self-explanation prompts. What are these self-explanation prompts all about, Michael? They come from research that followed kind of the initial burst of worked example research that aimed to understand why students sometimes don't learn from worked examples. So it starts with kind of the observation that some students are better at learning from worked examples than others. We talk about this a little bit in the book, but what researchers did is they did qualitative studies, essentially. Well, I mean, a mix of quantitative and qualitative studies at first. They, they asked students to think aloud as they looked at worked examples. And what they noticed, these researchers noticed as they went through the transcripts is, they, is that you know, people who were later successful applying the knowledge from a worked example on new problems they themselves say different things and apparently think different things as they are studying the worked example. And they prompt themselves with self-explanation prompts. So what are self-explanation prompts? Wait, why is this? Wait, how could that be? What are they doing here? Why does that work? Those types of questions seem, the hypothesis was, to help students as they're reading it make proper generalizations and then follow the example later when they're trying new problems. And then they were able to test this hypothesis by prompting students and with these types of questions while they were studying the worked examples and comprehension went up and the gap between students decreased. And this is a finding that has been built on over decades now that prompting students to explain things to themselves in many different situations improves learning, improves specifically the generalizations, the abstractions that students can make. And another way of saying that is their ability to apply what they've learned to new problems. 
So what's kind of interesting, and I don't touch on this that much in the book, but it's something that's really interesting to me is if you start digging into this, you're like, okay, great. This sounds wonderful. I totally understand what that means. But then there's all sorts of subtleties here. What is an explanation? Why does this work? There's lots of different kinds of explanations. What kinds of explanations help kids? Do all of them? So there's, I think Renkel made, I think an important contribution. I think it's Renkel. I could be wrong. Don't quote me on this, but I, I think it's Renkel that, that has a little paper that says, uh, essentially, look, there's different kinds of self-explanation and they might be useful in different ways in different subjects in different moments. But one of the ones in math that's really quite useful is connecting particular stuff to generalizations. So what self-explanation can, can do is it can say, it can help a person say, you know, why is this working? It's working because of, and then there's a connection to a general principle. So the general principle might be, you can always subtract equal amounts from an equation and the equation remains the same. The solutions remain the same. That kind of generalization, once a student has made it, is then applicable to new problems. If they don't make that generalization, they will have a hard time applying this very particular solution to this particular problem to a new particular problem. They need the generalization in the middle. So self-explanation prompts are an attempt to prompt students to think about the generalizations that they otherwise wouldn't make. Now, that's not the only thing you can use these prompts for. You can also use the prompts to direct attention, to point things out that they otherwise wouldn't have. And that's a very common use also. And that's useful also because students will often not read things super duper carefully and skip over things that are important. So what you're doing with these prompts are two things. One is helping to prompt students to make good generalizations by asking why questions or by asking what if questions or things that basically put them in contact with general principles. That's thing one. Thing two is you're trying to draw their attention to important things that they might have missed. Of course, you can draw attention to things that they might have missed in a couple different ways. Another thing I don't get, well, should I say it now? I don't know. Should I say it now? We can talk about it later. There's, there's cool research about what is sufficient to get the benefits of self-explanation. There's cool research. Uh, does it need to be a question that kids answer? Or what kind of a question does it need to be? So there's, there's experiments that have been done with like multiple choice self-explanation prompts where you say, you know, so if you think about it, you're trying to help kids make good generalizations. So you might say, which of these generalizations is the right one here? Which of these generalizations? And uh, is it that you can subtract equal stuff from both sides, that you can add equal stuff to both sides, and you can multiply both sides by equal stuff? So there's, and, and there are benefits there. So if students aren't good yet at explaining stuff, an option can be to offer them choices of good explanations. Mm. Another option is to do fill in the blank things to again, just make sure, because because you don't wanna, the, the fallacy here is the same fallacy that you might encounter when you're talking about problem solving and worked examples. Meaning, do students need to invent the self-explanation on their own? No, they don't. They just need to analyze it and think deeply about it and then explain it to themselves. And, and the, the, the way that you learn hasn't changed when you're talking about self-explanation. So you can model explanation for students. If you like to teach them to, you can also at this stage though, like I'm getting kind of wordy here. Let me take a step back. You've shown the example. Kids have had time to think about it. And now you're saying, I would like you to have a chance to think more deeply about it. You have options. You can ask kids a question and that will either draw attention to something or give them a chance to form 
a generalization. You can also, you know, you could just tell them an explanation, but the problem with just telling something is you don't know if kids have thought deeply about it. So you can construct situations where kids are very likely to think about it, more likely than if you just ask a question. You can offer multiple choice possibilities, or you can do like a fill in the blank sort of thing, like a completion problem, but with an explanation and a justification. So did that make any sense or was that like too complicated? I'm really thinking a lot about self-explanation these days. I think it's super cool. And I kind of like, I want to do more with it because it's, it's very interesting. Yeah, I agree. It was probably one of my favorite chapters to research in the Cognitive Load Theory book because it's just so amazing. And I think it really, more than anything, drives to the heart of the difference between the students who do really well in our classes and the students who really struggle. It's the extent to which they interrogate their own understanding of something that they're studying which, you know, the primary way in which they do that is self-explanation. So I agree, it's, it's, it's super important. Maybe one way for us to kind of reify this for listeners a little bit is to, to, to talk about some actual examples. So I don't know, I actually sent through to you a link to some of my lesson plans. So I've just got the, the first one open here, and this is, I'm keen to get some, some feedback from the master here, Michael. So this oh, is- come on, and I'll, I'll, um, For listeners, I'll, I'll put at least this first of the, this, or, or some of the worked examples from this lesson plan up on the show notes so they can see and follow along if they want to. But this just, for example, the first example in this set of examples, to use the word example three times in the same sentence, is find the hypotenuse um, of this triangle, uh, right angle triangle with short sides five and two, and it says in brackets exact value. And I've just got students to copy into their notebooks a definition, a student-friendly definition of what an exact value is and and things like that. Um, And so we've got the question there, we've got a bit of working and then we've got some self-explanation prompts. So I'll just share the prompts that I had for this one. And then you can tell me if you, what prompts you'd probably use for this kind of a question. So the prompts I had were, how did this student know which side to label A and which to label B? Um, and hopefully students will say, well, they're the two sides that are next to the right angle, um, but they should hopefully also recognize that it doesn't matter which of those two sides is A and which one's B, because that was a key thing that I really wanted to emphasize for the students, because I, I was worried that's something they'd get confused about. The second prompt I had was, what's going on between the two lines of working with the 29 in them? And so what this means here is basically, we've got one line, which is 29 equals C squared, and the next line is square root of 29 equals C. So hopefully they can they can work out or or find following the discussion that we were taking the square root of both sides. And the third one was, why didn't this student find the square root? And the answer to that is because they were asked only for the exact value and finding the square root would have resulted in something that wasn't an exact value. Any comments on those self-explanation prompts or, or any additions, things that you would probably do for this kind of example? This is a good one. I like the questions that you're asking here. You know, the, the thing that I look out for is, are they just attentional prompts? That's the first question I ask. Is it are, because because if they're just attentional prompts, there's usually a way to get attention to stuff without making that the focus of these prompts, right? There's usually a way to get attention. So when I look at them, the first thing I'm looking for is is it only attention? Is it only trying to make sure kids notice stuff in the example? And I don't think it does. I don't I don't think any of these are merely attentional prompts. Maybe the what is going on between the two lines of working with the 29 in them. That question is interesting. That one might be the one, if we wanted to workshop this, we might want to workshop that one because, well, first of all, because it's the one that's closest to just saying, hey, did you notice this? Mm. And also because, what, what can you say again what answer you kind of were hoping or thinking that students could answer to that one? Taking the square root, what's happening there is they're taking the square root of both sides. 
yeah. Will students be able to to answer that, you think? Probably. I actually don't. I didn't expect them to, but it was something that I wanted them to be able to, to know at the end of it. And so it was a way of, yeah. I, draw, I guess, drawing their attention to it and creating that kind of what we could call a knowledge gap so they're hungry to know what's happening and then saying, well, what we're doing. With and I think that's an example where I was, you know, I went to a few students, no one had the right answer. And I said, okay, what we're doing here is taking the square root of both sides. And then we'll so, get a few so, of them to repeat that. I see, I see. So what I might do in that case is I might say, you know, the example, the last two steps show taking the square root of both sides. So I'll just say that that's what's going on. And then I'll say, why could they do that here? Or why is that a good idea to do here? Or why is that appropriate? So I'll, I'll use the first sentence to draw attention because I just, that's, that's just what I'm saying. I'm saying that's what they did. It was a good idea. They took the square root of both sides. And then I would try to prompt the generalization. I'd say, why are they doing that? Or why is that a good idea? Or, you know, what about the problem indicator that was, you know, the right thing to do? Because the response I'd like there is the generalization. Right? The generalization being something like, because it was a squared, you know, because there's something to the second power, because it's C squared. The generalization being, if an equation is C squared equals something, you can get the solution by undoing the squaring with the square root or, or something like that. So that's that a lot of the work that I do when I'm writing these prompts is trying to figure out if there's another way to draw attention and so I can focus more on the generalization forming thing, kind of like what we just did there. But I, I really like, like, why didn't this student find this square root? Because maybe even I'd say, like, how did the student know that they shouldn't calculate the value of the square root of 29? That's a really good question. The generalization there being something like, if a problem asks for exact value, don't find an approximate decimal answer. You know, it's so... So I like that question. And yeah, this is a nice, nice little example. Nice job. <laughs> I like it. Cool. That's really great because one of the most common things I've done. So in this example, it said, I said, you know, what's going on between the two lines of working with the 29 of them? I realized that was a little bit wordy. So what I started to do on later examples, and you, you may like this idea, you may not, I'm curious to hear your feedback, but I actually started to draw, draw in a different color, for example, arrows on both sides from the between two lines of working. And so I, I assume students know that the prompt's going to be something to, to do with that. But then I'd, the prompt would be basically what's happening in the pink step. Absolutely. That's great. Or you can just draw an arrow. You just be like in the step that the arrow is pointing to. Yeah, exactly. What's going on? So that's it. But that what's going on is similar to the what's going on here. Whereas what you've said is a lot of the time it will be like, oh, they're dividing both sides by three or they're multiplying both sides by four or something. So you would suggest there yeah, in the pink step, they've multiplied both sides by four. How did they know it was a good time to do that? You think that's better? Right, right. Or, or could they have done it in some other way if I want to get it in a different way, right? Like what if, what if they had divided by three, if they're supposed to multiply by three or what if, what if they added, could they have added something? I, I, I'm just trying to, to, to get thinking about a principle that will be useful when, a, when working with many problems later. Mm. Yeah. But I, I see how that, I see the value of that because it's one thing for them to say, oh yeah, they've divided both sides by three, but what they actually need to know is when they need to divide both sides by three. So exactly. asking, asking that question, how did they know it was a good time to do that, is actually deeper than, than just what's happened here. So love it. Love it. Yeah, there's a, there's, a really, there's a really nice article. If you can find it online or have access to the National Council of Teachers of Math in America, a researcher, Julie Booth, with a bunch of co-authors, including some classroom teachers, she's the one who is, I think, the lead researcher on Algebra by Example, that project that I praised earlier. 
And she wrote a very accessible article about worked examples in the classroom. And she has a, a, some good advice there about coming up with these kind of prompts. I don't know if she would agree with the kind of way I framed it about you're searching for generalizations, but she does kind of say, maybe we're trying for why questions, a lot of whys and what ifs in the mix. It's, 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 not, a, it's not a situation though where, where I think she would say, and I, I certainly wouldn't say, that you should never have what is going on questions. I think those are valuable questions at times also. Mm, that's great. And then just, just to do one more. So the next question was a similar Pythagoras question, but with rounding to two decimal places. And the prompts I had here was, what's something that you notice about the equal signs throughout the student's work? I would say that's a very much just an attentional one. The students were meant to identify that the equal signs are lined up. And so I'm just trying to help them to structure their work better. Yeah, yeah. If you wanted to rephrase that, it could be like, this student lined up all their equal signs. Why did they do that? Mm -hmm. What answer would you want to that? Oh, why do you want them to have their equal uh, signs lined up? If, if that's important to you, whatever the reason is would be, I suppose the answer is it keeps their work more organized, I suppose. I mean, is that why you value that? Yeah, it keeps more organized. It makes it easier to find mistakes. And I guess, I think the way that I phrased the students was, you know, it helps you work more like a mathematician. Sure. Which ma which may or may not be true, <laughs> but I know. I yeah, guess I don't I... know. Certainly, my mathematical work is is incredibly messy, but yeah. but I I recognize that it'd be kind of nice if I could be cleaner. But yeah, so so I think that if you want to, you can just point out. You can do the attentional thing in like a quick phrase, and then ask why do you think they did this, or uh, again to prompt a generalization. Mm, okay. And then the final prompt that we will discuss here is well, what I've got this, this one is this triangle is drawn a different way than the first example, kind of upside down. What difference does this make? So this is a bit of a different one. This is kind of like a trick question because the answer is no difference. I feel like you've probably got a better way to rephrase this one as well. Hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure. So what's the general principle here? The general principle is it doesn't matter what the order is or what the orientation of the diagram is. I feel like, yeah, that's a good thing to notice. I I wonder if students, maybe, maybe, yeah, I'm not sure. I, I might, maybe the way I would say this is how did the, I don't know, maybe this is not exactly the same thing, but I wonder if it's getting to the similar thing. Uh, it, the way my mind's working, just to think aloud here, is I'm trying to say, okay, what is he trying to draw attention to? And is there a way that I can draw attention to that while also asking a generalization prompting question? That's That's basically my procedure here. So I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, Okay, what about this? The hard part, mentally and visually, is often finding the longest side, trying to make sure you know where the hypotenuse is. So maybe what I'd say is, this student, like, how did they know which side was the longest side, which side was the hypotenuse, which side, I mean, I guess you labeled it C here, but you could have labeled it X, and right, you could have asked, how did they know which side was the longest here, which side was the hypotenuse, which side was the C squared, so to speak. And maybe that would kind of draw attention to the noticing about the different orientation while also driving at a kind of a really useful generalization for kids. I often find that kids have a hard time identifying the longest side 100%. when looking at. So, so maybe that's, again, this is not, this is me not saying, you know, you did a bad job there. It's me saying, if you wanted to try to go beyond the attentional thing, this is how you might try to do that. But I kind of I I like your prompt. I kind of like my prompt. I don't know. That's cool. No, thanks, Michael. They're, they're, good, they're, they're good prompts. 
That's great. That's great. Um, one of the things I've been struggling with a little bit is, so I, I have been using popsticks to call students a lot. I think I think I, my teaching would benefit from kind of walking around the class and listening more carefully and trying to pick out doing some warm calling, as we've now termed it. But I'm sure it's the case for you that sometimes you call on a student and what they say kind of doesn't isn't correct. Something I've been I haven't worked out a good way to deal with yet is is that situation where what they offer isn't isn't correct. What do you do in that scenario? So, I mean, I will say that, right, just to make this explicit, if you're walking around and gathering information and you call on students, you, you have higher confidence that what they're saying is correct. Uh-huh. And that's nice in some ways because, right, it's hard when it's hard for the teacher and it's not always valuable for students to hear. It's sometimes valuable to hear a wrong answer, but sometimes it's, it's painful and drawn out and takes a long time to kind of sort out exactly what's going on. So I think it's nice to call on students when you know that they have something valuable to and uh, roughly accurate and, and an important contribution to, to share. That said, you're right. So you need a thing. I used to do the thing that I think a lot of us do, and it's very painful, where you kind of Socratically question the student until they eventually relent, and sometimes in tears after having gone through a grilling, when the correct answer would merely yield just a quick, that's right, from the teacher. Instead, it's just a painful, drawn-out extraction of the truth from them. I really try to avoid that. Nobody likes that. Yeah. I don't like that. The kids don't like that. Classmates don't like that. It's It makes you feel not great, I think, when it's happening to you. It can sometimes make you defensive as a learner, saying, no, I thought it was right. And, and there's a debate and it can be a power thing. It's not It's not a good dynamic and you want to try to avoid it. Look, what I've, and I really also don't like this move. I really don't like, anybody know? Hand up, wrong answer. Can anybody else explain why that was wrong? Or like, I don't like just moving to somebody else because that's not nice either. That's that can make a kid feel bad, you know. Like so, so what I try to do is that if it's wrong, I just say that's not right. But and I just kind of quickly move on. A lot of the time, right? Uh, I mean, if they've said something true, the easiest. So, so one usually, if if you ask kids to talk a bit, they'll say some true things and one inaccurate thing. If you're just asking for a number, like what's the answer? Seven? No. You know, it's not seven. But it, uh, but if you ask for like a little bit of why, they'll usually say some things that are smart. And then you can say, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Now, I don't I don't agree with the seven. I don't agree. And, I'll, and then I'll just explain why I, I think it is what it is. Okay. Um, you won't go to it. So, so, all right, so let's let's kind of model this. So sure. the, the prompt is what's going on between the two lines of working with the 29 in them. You call on Ollie. Ollie says, oh, well, they divided both sides by C. Divided both sides by C. Wait, which step? This is the between the 29 and yeah, the, so the, the correct oh, okay. answer is they need they took the square root of both sides. So I'm a student. I want you to react to me as the teacher, if you would, Michael, if you're happy to oh, play yes. along. Absolutely. Yeah. So I put my hand up or, or you call on me and I say, oh, they divided both sides by C. Ah, dividing by C. Okay. So that's a very often a very good move, right? Very often a very good move. But when it's C squared, we don't want to do that. Instead, we want to do something else. Ali, do you have do you, do you think you know what it's it's not dividing by c, but do you think you know what it is when you, when when it's c, when it's squaring? What it is is it's basically it's undoing c squared. Do you think you know? It's okay. It's okay. Yeah, it's totally fine. What what it is is I'll show you and then you can use it. It's you take the square root of both sides because square rooting is the opposite of squaring. So if you see squaring, you want to square root it. I know that you over there. Yeah, yeah. It's great that you also knew the answer. I'm going to take this one. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I do it myself. I don't. I don't like the power dynamic of within the classroom of, of students correcting their their peers. Uh, I mean, there's there's a time for everything, but I, I I'm I'm reluctant 
do that. My instincts are to take it myself and to give you a chance if you want to correct, but no pressure. I'll take this one. Mm, that was good. That was good. I, I, I felt very, uh, very supported. Feel validated? I felt validated. Okay, I glad. felt supported. Yeah, Thank it wasn't the thing where like uh, everybody kind of jumped on you. Like anybody have a different idea, and then ten hands go up, and it's like I think Ollie's wrong because you don't divide by C. Yeah, we're not doing that. It's yeah. not. It's, I, don't, I don't like that. Mm, okay, and I guess a mathematical point: the right hand side is divided by C. Yeah, the right hand side is divided by C in this particular case just just for anyone who's uh who's listening at home and in nitpicking that the right hand side is divided by c the issue is the left hand side isn't also divided by c all right on to the so the next thing is kind of that moving on to independent practice you you've you've got a whole chapter in the book that's dedicated to moving from this worked example study to the problem solving did you want to make any comment on that i guess what i would say and i touch a i feel like repeating this phrase very often that i talk about in the book the book's excellent, and everybody should purchase several copies of it. So I agree. I might, I might as well, you know, plug the book as often as I can. I think a mistake that we sometimes make is thinking of worked examples and practice as the only two options. Uh, so worked examples and independent practice as the only two options. Or to speak more broadly, that an explanation where an expert shows how a thing is done and people solving a problem on their own, that those are the only two options. That's not the only two options. There's a lot of interesting stuff in the middle. There's a lot of really interesting ways to give independent practice that has elements of modeling from an expert while also giving you a chance to practice some things. So what that chapter in the book's really about is, it's about research that's been written about a couple of different ways uh, by a lot of really excellent teachers, including Ollie and Craig Barden and many others. Research that Rankle has done a lot of, pioneered in a lot of ways. It's about moving the transition from worked examples to problem solving. But I, what I think is maybe distinctive about the way I, 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 I pose it is I kind of think about it as, well, what do I think about it as? Well, it's, it's not, not just that it's a, well, that it, that it has elements of worked examples and it has elements of practice. So it's in the middle between the two of them. That's not so distinctive. <laughs> that's not that's not the distinctive part. I guess the distinctive part is that I that I apply this kind of framework of whole whole task practice to it a little bit. I think that's an important idea also. That when we're practicing things, it's possible to practice just the individual parts. Like so, if you're trying to learn how to, I don't know, what's a sport that we have in common here uh, between our our cultures? I was going to say baseball, but that's certainly not the case. Swimming. You can you can you can practice the kicking part of swimming. When you learn to swim, very often they give you a flotation device and they ask you to, to do the kicking motion. And then they might give you a flotation device and ask you to separately do the hands motion. You could do those separately, but what, what's happening there is it's happening in a meaningful context. You're moving your body through the water. It would also be possible you could imagine somebody teaching someone how to swim by like on the side of the pool or on land, just asking them to kick stuff, like do the kicking motion. That might be a valuable exercise, actually. That's, that's, that's not helping you swim. That's not an activity you're on land. You're not going to move in the water. That doesn't feel like swimming. But that could be valuable practice. That's in contrast to like when you're in the water and you're practicing stuff, but you're still moving. I think that is, and this is a, a phrase I've, I've kind of maybe bent for math education, when it's not usually used for this, but it's the distinction between whole task practice and part task practice. If you're just 
focusing on one little thing and isolating that and not doing anything else, that's part task practice. That's like kicking on shore. If you're kicking in the water, focusing on that while still doing a meaningful swimming activity, that's whole task practice. And I think that a lot of the things that Rankle talks about with fading can be thought of as whole task practice. And as you move, basically the idea is I, I, I think a lot of practice, we can practice just one step in a skill and that can be really useful. Like in your Pythagorean theorem thing, we can be practicing just, you know, solving a lot of equations that are like C squared equals nine, C squared equals 25, A squared equals 10. We can do that. That's part task practice when you're thinking about what it takes to get good at Pythagorean theorem stuff, because that's just a part of the bigger skill. And you're just taking that little part, that little, little line, and you're just doing that move. But we could also practice that little skill in the context of the Pythagorean theorem problem. That's kind of like practicing kicking while you're swimming in the water and it's still moving you forward. And I think what's good about that is it gives you a sense of where you're going, what your goals are, and it allows you to kind of think about it in a, in a more integrated activity. I think it's good to do both kinds of practice, but I think sometimes when we talk about practice that makes a difference in math education, we don't always talk about the whole task practice. So I think fading a worked example, you talk about this in your book, you talk about Rankle on your podcast. You've had these great interviews with him. Fading a worked example is a really powerful way to have whole task practice. You're practicing individual steps in the context of a meaningful thing, a meaningful skill, meaningful activity. You are trying to find the missing side of a right triangle and you are practicing just one piece of it, but you can see how it connects to the whole thing. Mm. In what context would you use fading and when would you not use it? Also, I'm just going to get a banana because my blood sugar is a bit low. I'll, I'll let you. I'll let you think about that. While I'll I think about that. I suspect that this will be cut from the final podcast. It will. It will. So then I'll just say ridiculous things here. I mean, what I've noticed is, first of all, some problems are too short for fading. Some skills are too short, so you need a bunch of steps. The other thing is, it, fading doesn't make a lot of sense if the procedure itself has a lot of variety. So I think about this with my geometry students where I'm trying to um, teach proof. Some kinds of proof problems where you have two different triangles and you're trying to argue that they're congruent. Sometimes those are pretty stereotypical. They're pretty similar. So you can you could you could fade out, you know, lines from that and ask kids to do it because they'll be able to see how it works one after the other. But at a certain level of complexity, it's it doesn't really make sense because the proofs themselves are, are too different from each other. Part of that is a problem with how we teach proof and geometry for these kids. You really do need to build up a repertoire of things that you really know how to do, the kind of things that are kind of the same every time. And that's a curricular problem with a lot that I struggle with often because there's, I feel like, not enough time to do it sometimes the, the way that I really want to. But anyway, uh, so that's kind of my answer. Do you have an answer? It sounds like you might have some thoughts. Just finished my banana. I'm, I'm drinking tea. This is a lovely way to spend uh, time. This is we could be doing this over at a cafe. I don't coronavirus. Who cares? We'll be doing this. This is we, this is cafe, cafe Ollie. <laughs> Indeed. Um, well, I'd agree with a lot of what you said. I think the kind of fading works really well in scenarios where there's a regular structure. So I, I, I'm similar to you. I, I hadn't actually used it a whole heap even before your book, but when I came to teaching this Pythagoras stuff to the year nines, you know, there's there's actually a lot of steps for a year nine who's yeah. not super f- familiar with yeah. their maths to, to do 
there's a lot of stuff going on. There's like the labeling, the triangle, they're setting out the original equations, substituting it in, doing the algebra, rounding at the end. And I was pretty worried that they were going to struggle with it and, and not set it out how I wanted. So I thought, oh, well, this is, an ex- this is a situation where fading could actually be really good. And I was actually... I was actually amazed at how well it worked and how well it then scaffolded them to continue to follow those steps consistently and lay out their work well um, when it came to like fully independent practice. So yeah, I just, I guess I wanted to bring it up because I hadn't used it much before, even though I'd, I'd known about it, read, read a bunch of research on it, but perhaps not taught in a context where there was that repetition. And like you said, the correct length of problem where it's not too short or, or not too long. Well, it'll probably work for too long, but you'd probably break it up then yeah but yeah so really really powerful i mean the other context the other thing i'd say is that is that a lot of a lot of these techniques with work examples work most simply with algebra or with with a series of equations and then when you move to either arithmetic with younger students or with geometry or other areas of math Algebra is special. One thing I realized while working on this book is that algebra truly is special. The special thing about algebra is it comes in these lines and the process is usually pretty clear when you move from equation to equation. It's pretty explicit as you move from equation to equation. It's not that way in every area of math. And so a lot of what I, a lot of what feels like it takes a lot of creativity is when I'm teaching other topics outside of algebra even arithmetic to younger students. I mean, think about a procedure like, you know, it would be possible, I was going to say, um, you know, finding equivalent fractions, which is fine. You can do that. Visually, it's even a little bit, I don't know. It's the same routine every time, but it's not as clear, for me at least, to, it's possible, no question possible, but it's not as simple. It will take me more drafts to get that right than it will be to create a fading or a worked example with algebra. So I, I did try to include as many non-algebraic things in this book as I can, but it's worth noting that algebra is kind of the easiest case for a lot of this stuff. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. And, and that relates to another question I was keen to ask you in terms of your, your routine, your work example routine more broadly. What do you see as the kind of boundary conditions to it? Are there any contexts that you, you find you just don't use this in the classroom? And, and, when, and when do you find it most effective? Well, one thing that comes to mind is uh, I wrote one chapter of this book about geometry proof, which we were just talking about. And geometry proof, it's interesting. A special thing about algebra is that if you write a series of equations, even if you don't write the like the minus 2x from each side thing, it kids can often, once you've done a couple of these, they can often supply those missing steps. In other words, the process is usually readily apparent from the final product. That's a special thing about algebra, that the process usually is revealed in the final product. If you think about other things, other mathematical, completed mathematical solutions, I don't think that's true. And I don't think that's true in geometry proofs, maybe for the simplest ones, perhaps. But as they get more complex, just looking at a proof does not really tell you how a person came up with it or how a person thought to to do what they did. So I think that's true in other areas of math also and other moments where it's just not clear from looking at the finished work, like look at the clearest write-up of a solution. It's not always clear for every area of math where that comes from. So that's the boundary condition for me. That's when I start changing things. I, because, I think because my approach is not dependent on, like I'm not committed to my routine. I'm committed to principles. And so I find myself with flexibility in my routine. 
while trying to maintain those principles. And those principles are, you know, what we talked about at the very beginning of this conversation. How is it that people learn from worked examples? They learn from analyzing them. They learn from self-explanation and making generalizations and then applying them to new cases to make stronger generalizations. So I, they often have trouble noticing and remembering things in the worked example and need to be prompted with that beforehand. So I take those and I start moving things around when I teach geometry proof. I really do. I find myself modeling more, talking out loud more, which results in further changes. In other words, I don't just show a completed proof and say, study it on your own, because the real response from my students would be, what on earth are you showing me? This makes no sense. Also, if it does make sense, like, where did you get this? So I need to supply some words. And I, I think most algebra, I feel able, and more, most calculus, I feel able but, but I think a similar thing might be integration techniques with my calculus students. That requires you need some explanation of where that stuff comes from. Looking at the completed thing, because there's a creative step there where you said, oh, this type of, you have to share a lot. It's hard. You could write it in a worked example, but why would you? Why would you just put, write that as opposed to saying, adding a little bit of, of, so I still believe in a lot of these things. They all remain true, but in these difficult cases where the product does not reveal the process to my students, I supply the process with a think aloud, essentially. I say, I reveal the worked example, the solution, but I say, okay, so let me walk you through what I did. First, I was thinking, I knew I had to prove that these triangles were congruent. And I knew that the given information was that these sides were congruent. So I said to myself, which triangles might I be able to use? Or I might say to myself, I know I have two sides. I'm going to need an angle somewhere here. Where can I find an angle in this diagram that is congruent, a pair of angles that are congruent? So I, I talk aloud more is what I find myself doing. There's other ways, and I go on about this for a while, but there's other ways that I have to change things. But that's the main one. Mm, cool. Something else I want to talk about is you, we mentioned before you've got that chapter regarding about moving from worked examples to problem solving. And the problem solving you're referring to in that chapter is very much the problem solving that cognitive load theory refers to, which is essentially solving similar problems. But what what you didn't talk about in the book, but I'm really keen to hear your thoughts about nonetheless, is giving supporting students to get better at solving what many teachers would think of as problem solving, which is solving unfamiliar problems or problems for which the solution method is not known in advance. You, you kind of before alluded to the fact that you do give students these types of problems. So I wanted to ask you, how do you scaffold that? Do you What's your view on problem-solving strategies? Do you teach problem-solving strategies like polyer stuff and things like that? But how do you, how do you kind of scaffold or, or, or give your students exposure to these authentic problem-solving, let's call it? Yeah, so, so we were talking earlier about like hints and things like that. And part of my story with this, with polia and with problem-solving in general has to do with that. So polia has these problem-solving strategies. And you can tell from his books, how he imagines teaching going, which is that a student will get stuck on a problem and he'll say, is there anything in the diagram that, is there a simple problem that you can find? And they'll say no. And he'll say, is there another set of triangles in this diagram that you recognize? And they'll say these ones. And then he'll Socratically push them, you know, through a lot of questioning to, towards a solution. It's a lot of questions. Some of those dialogues in his books are quite long. It really makes sense if it's a tutoring situation. Or if you've got a lot of time, because that's a lot of, yes, a lot of questions. But some of the questions he asks are these kind of big strategies. So there's a simpler problem somewhere, go and, go and find it, which a lot of mathematicians 
recognize as being true to the work of mathematics. A lot of people have tried to teach those strategies to students. Research usually finds that it doesn't go particularly well. It's not so easy to teach those strategies to students. Alan Schoenfeld is kind of an interesting case because he tried that in his teaching and reported that it didn't really work. But he kind of said, I recognize the problem. The problem was that it was too general. There's lots of different strategies. There's lots of different ways to take, find a simpler problem. There's a million ways to make a problem simpler, right? So which ones, he, we need more specific advice. This is not good teaching advice, in other words. You need a more specific prompt. So Alan Schoenfeld did some teaching experiments with his own classes where he thought that he you know, had success by making the prompts far more specific. Things like if there's a integer parameter in this problem and you're trying to prove something, try n equals zero, then n equals one, then n equals two, and then see if you can make a generalization. Hey, that's a pretty good bit of advice, especially if it's like, I could teach that in an algebra class for some students. It'd be really hard, honestly, for some, but I, I could imagine situations where I would teach that. So that's that's getting closer, I think, to something that's that's valuable. So, so where that comes in for me is what I was saying earlier, which is, if I want kids to know that strategy, how am I going to teach that strategy? So if the prompt is kind of a much more specific and grounded version of Polya's strategies, these big domain spanning strategies, I, I don't, right, those are not teachable. There's probably much more specific ones that are really teachable, like in geometry. One that I always find myself saying is, if you can create isosceles triangles and you've never seen a diagram before, that might be useful. You might be able to, to use those isosceles triangles. Another strategy is that I often find myself telling kids, kind of relates to the goal-free effect that you've written about, is when you're starting a geometry problem, maybe consider ignoring the prompt and just finding as many angles as you can. The, the answer might shake out. You know, that's kind of a, that's a strategy. That's a problem-solving strategy. It's not the sky-high polia version of it. It's pretty down-to-earth. But it's not as down to earth as, you know, a skill, a procedure that I'm teaching them. It's, it's, it's a little bit above the procedure level. It's kind of abstract, but it's often really useful, I think. But how are you going to teach that, right? In Schoenfeld and, and Puglia, you kind of get the idea that it's kind of like, well, as soon as a kid gets stuck, that's when you go ahead and you say, have you considered this? So this is when I get to what I was saying earlier. Why not just teach that? If you know that it's a useful prompt, let's pick a problem. That exemplifies it. Let's write a worked example, or if it's too complex for a worked example, let's write a solution and then model model our thought process along with it. Whatever. Let's come up with a worked example. Let's teach it. Let's do the whole thing. Let's talk about it. Let's apply it to a new problem. Let's practice it. And then let's try using it in either in a new challenging problem or the normal challenges that we encounter throughout our lives in this class in geometry or in mathematics. So that's kind of my approach. My approach is, can problem solving be taught the way Polya thought? No, I don't think so. Can it be taught the way Schoenfeld thought? Yeah, I think probably. It's probably good to teach more than just specific skills. It's probably good to give some of these things that we think of as just good teacherly advice. But my contribution, I think, and not only my contribution, not I'm not the only one who says this, but I think my perspective is say, let's really teach it. Let's not, let's not treat that as... If it's important, let's teach it. If it's not important, okay, fine. It's not important. But if it's important, let's teach it. Mm, that's great. And, and maybe we should use a worked example to teach it. That's great. And I'm kind of imagining kind of like a spectrum of generalization slash abstraction there where we teach one single procedure. It's right at the kind of specific end and then the poly is at the other end with the massive generalization and you're saying we can push to more towards poly, poly but don't get too far because then it gets 
gets too hard to apply. Very valuable. I also think that I also think that like you know it doesn't hurt to give Polly's advice. Sometimes might not help. It might. You don't know. I think of it also as like a expected utility function, like to borrow that from economics, right? Like you might. I I don't expect kids to get much out of Polly's thing, so I'm not going to devote a class to that. Doesn't mean that it's bad advice. Doesn't mean that it. It's not useful to some students. I might say, yeah, if you can find a simpler problem here, that might be useful. I'd be happy to share that. Do I expect it to be super helpful for my students who are struggling a lot? No, not really. So there's there's an expected utility function where the more specific stuff I feel is much more likely to be helpful. So I will invest more classroom time in it. Mm. And maybe you could even connect it for them a, a, along that spectrum, like that through line of towards abstraction. You could say, Often it's useful to solve a simpler problem. In this geometry case, a way you can do that is just by finding as many of the sides or angles exactly. as you can. Exactly. Yeah. That's and then, exactly. And you know, next lesson. Oh, before previously, I told you it's often helpful to solve a simpler problem. In this case, we can do that by blah 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 blah. So yeah, love it. Yeah, that that's exactly my perspective. I think I don't know. <laughs> I doubt myself really easily. Is part of my personality, so that sounds really good. I think that's what I do. I don't, but to be perfectly honest, I don't. I think that's a good idea. I don't really do that very much. I don't usually connect it to the bigger things because I haven't found them particularly useful. But I, I, I like that idea, and I think that it, that could have value. Cool. One other thing I wanted to ask you about before we were talking about the the extent to which self, the ability to self-explain, really differentiates more and less successful learners. One thing I've been thinking about, or like an endpoint I, I would love to get to with, for example, this year nine class I've been working with, is get them to the point where I've, I'm actually inviting them to come up with prompts for the worked examples themselves. Because I imagine after a year of kind of, even a few couple of terms of teaching them, giving them all these prompts, they're going to start to think for themselves, oh, Sir's probably going to ask us this about this question. Is that something you've thought about or tried yourself? No. No, I can answer that really decisively. I haven't really. I don't share your confidence that students would come up with those because I think the prompts are coming from a place of expertise. I think the prompts, right? There's, there. I think I could imagine a teacher, not me, who comes up with kind of a routine for prompts, like says, every time you look at a work example, you should be asking yourself the following three questions. You know, why did they do this thing? Like, what are they doing? Why are they doing? What else could they have done? That's not my, my, the way I do this. Mm. The way I do this is I think, what generalizations do I want students to make? I know those generalizations. They don't. So I have to be the one to come up with those prompts. That's my perspective. I could imagine somebody that says, no, I want, the, I want to train students to become more independent. So I'm going to make a routine. And it's the same questions every time or the, roughly the same questions every time. And then, yeah, maybe that, maybe that would help students' self-efficacy. I don't know. That's not what I've tried. I don't have a problem with trying it. I'd be open to hearing about people who tried it. That's just not what I've done. Yeah, cool. So I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because I guess a part of me thinks that often the prompts are going to be centered around the parts that students are likely to find confusing or difficult or befuddling or something like that. And therefore, students might learn that and they might grow more attuned to it's like going through the lines of the worked example and going, oh, I'm a bit stuck on this one. This takes a bit more thinking. And then maybe learning that, oh, this is a line that took more thinking for me. That probably means Sir is going to ask me about it or something like that. So I guess that's the, the line of thinking I was coming from. It's a good line of thinking. One thing that I hope, and I, I don't do a particularly good job pointing this out, but I think it's important, like meta knowledge about learning mathematics. 
that you should not be skipping over things that seem like they make sense, but you can't really explain it, right? I, that, that's, that's an example of something I'd really hope that my students learn over the course of the year. And I don't know if I'm emphasizing that. I really should. That's kind of an important thing that when you hit that, don't, don't just go, go step by step. You know, don't don't just skip over the stuff that I hope that I teach that maybe I should be more thoughtful about that. And then as we're talking now, I think I should about helping students. Yeah, because you've you've hit the nail on the head there. It's like some might call it the lazy thinking or fooling yourself and going, oh, yeah, I get that. Oh, yeah, I get that. And just kind of right. jumping over it. But maybe maybe even us giving it that a name or something, calling it like putting a box around it and say, this is the this is the be- the high concentration zone of this question or something like that. Yeah. That might help students to go, oh, you know, the prompt could be, you could have a mix of the generalization prompts that come from the expert and then the kind of more routine independent learner building prompts like sure. find the concentration zone of this question. And then they're like, oh, this is the part I got stuck in. This is the where I need to concentrate. So maybe there could be a mix yeah. there. Could be. There's, there's always one thing I like about, one thing I like about having these kinds of teachers going deep into research is that when you get down to the classroom level, there are lots of new questions that research hasn't tackled. Maybe they won't because they're not considered interesting in, in, in certain fields, but they're very interesting to classroom teachers. So I think that that's you know trying to figure out the limits of these research ideas for classroom teachers, the way we, we were talking about before, and also you know new applications or, or new questions that, that I don't think are answered that we're asking now, I think that's 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 one of the most exciting things to me about classroom teachers talking about research. 100%. Another section of your book that I really loved because of the incisive way to which you dissected it and the mechanism behind it was, was the section on feedback. So I'd love to ask you just the broad question so you can share some of your wisdom with listeners. How does feedback work? Nobody knows. That's not that's what you say answer. in the book. No. Well, well, but it's feedback is such a broad category that, right? If you look at research on feedback, I don't know. Some people might be surprised by this. Some people might not. But it's much messier than you might expect. And part of the messiness comes from the range of things it's it's attempting to encompass. So you might look to the feedback research and hope that it says, you know, what does effective feedback look like and how do I give it, right? But it's hard to get that advice across computer-generated feedback, classroom situations tutoring situations, every different content area, essays, math equations. It's tough. It's not easy. So there's a lot of feedback might mean a lot more than what I'm about to say. But at the very least, at a kind of a basic level, how does feedback work? I think there's two conceivable ways, just speaking broadly, there's two conceivable ways for feedback to work. And this is me borrowing an idea, by the way, from Kluger and Denisi, I think, one of their one of their papers. It's kind of adapting and kind of changing it a little bit, whatever. It's basically their idea. So it could either be motivating. Feedback can be motivating. That's one thing that feedback could do. It could be motivating or it can be instructive. It can teach people stuff. So those two things. If I give a person feedback, one thing that it might do is it might motivate them to learn something new. So if I say, sorry, James, you got you got an F on this exam. What's the dream? The teacher's dream is that James takes that F and says, oh, I got to do better. I got to do better. And, and James goes back to the textbook, spends all night working on it, says, aha, I just, I didn't try, but now I'm trying and I've learned it. Look, that's, that's a ridiculous example. But, but on a lower level, 
teachers do expect this all the time, right? You give, you get, you mark something wrong, you hand it back, and your the expectation is you'll you'll pay more attention to it now in the future because you're really motivated to because you don't want to make the same mistake again. Okay. What's the other thing feedback can do? It can teach. So paradigmatically, teachers looking at an essay and they notice something in the essay and they they write it on the they they say this student you know james has wrote you've written a lovely essay but you know your analysis of the role of capitalism in 19th century england a little bit shallow you didn't bring up the wage workers on the thames i don't know anything what i'm talking about i don't teach history but but you know you teach you teach james something new through the feedback and then james is like ah okay so i will i now know something that i didn't know and i'll use that in the future that's great so that's the question the question is is your feedback motivating or is it teaching something new that's the question i ask myself with feedback is my feedback motivating someone to do to learn something or to perform better in some way or am i teaching them how to perform better in some way so let's think about the typical feedback that we give. This is a fun game to play. This is a, a game pioneered by, by Taylor Willem. It's, it's easy to make fun of typical feedback because it doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, you, kids have been working on stuff for a month or a month and a half. You say it's test time. They take the test. James does very poorly on the tests. You mark it up. You hand it back. Is that motivating? Not usually. It's usually demotivating. It feels bad to get that. You feel bad about yourself. You, you throw out the paper. You're like, oh man, I'm gonna get in big trouble. That's not the that doesn't getting in big trouble doesn't usually that fear is not usually motivating the ways that we think it's gonna be motivating. We kind of so it's it's usually not motivating. And then what about is it instructive? Uh, maybe if we if James were to reflect deeply on the wrong answers that James received on this exam and then hit the books and studied, there's that motivation piece and was able to study on. James's own, then maybe it would be instructive, but the X's themselves are not teaching a tremendous amount. So we're not teaching very much here. So this feedback is neither motivating James nor teaching James very much. So I, my conclusion is that this feedback isn't doing very much at all. This is a classic game from people who have thought about feedback to play with the typical feedback in math class. So what's better? Well, I, if you have a way to motivate students, then go ahead and do that. I Motivating is hard. So I'm not going to talk about that. I know about teaching, though, because I teach James, right? I teach. That's my job. I'm a teacher. I teach all this stuff. So I could just teach James what James doesn't know. And if I can, now, the problem is that there's a lot of kids in this classroom, not just James. But suppose that I was able to find something that lots of kids in the class needed to know. Well, then I could just teach it. And wouldn't that be feedback that works, right? That would be basically feedback that does the thing that feedback can do. It would teach them, and maybe that'd be motivating also, who knows, but but it would teach them the thing that they need to know. That would be great. That'd be wonderful. Now, okay, I'm rolling on my little spiel here, so I'll just keep going. Keep going. Okay, Michael, that's great, but that's not how tests work. Tests work, first of all, that it's a 20, 25, 30 question, 40, it's a long test, 15 questions, I don't know, 15 questions, 10 questions. What's a reasonable, what do people usually do, 15 10? Depends on the test, Depends right? The test right? Like if it's a mock assessment, it could be like, you know, 30 multiple choice questions and then a, uh, you know, a, uh, you know, whatever you call it, an open reply question, a uh, free response question. There's a lot of variety here. But basically what usually happens is, you know, one thing that happens is that everybody gets everything wrong. And so that's a big mess. There's like 20 questions that, that are focus areas. Or James gets one question wrong very badly. 
and then Susan gets another question wrong, and Demarcus gets a question wrong, and Promise gets a question wrong, and uh, Juan gets a question wrong, and Insaf gets a question wrong, and everyone gets a different question wrong. And like, where what are you going to do? You can't just reteach everything. That's a disaster. So, so that's a totally valid point. It's not easy. And I, I think another way of saying that is it's not easy to give feedback on those tests. They're not easy assessments to get feedback on. So that's just a really tough situation. There's not, by the time you get to the, the big long test, there's not much you can do. Isn't That's another way of saying that. So my approach to feedback, I guess, is to say, if I want to give, so, so shorter quizzes, shorter assessments, usually, this is an idea that I think Harry Fletcher would point it out to me for the first time on, on a comment to one of my blog posts. And I really appreciated it. Because he pointed out, look, there's just maybe a limit to what you can do with, with these kinds of assessments. Shorter assessments will be easier to give feedback on, effective feedback on. Longer ones will be harder. And that's just the way the world is. And uh, it would be nice if it was easy to give feedback on long assessments. Sometimes it is. You might get lucky. You might get like a bunch of quids all have the wrong, same wrong question. And then you know exactly where to focus. You reteach that thing, but usually not. And so the, the kind of feedback picture is you want to think about whether you can give feedback on the kind of assessment you're giving. And is it teaching or is it motivating? And if it's neither, it might have a different role to play. It might not be about learning. It might be about showing that you care or justifying grades, marks. That's valid also. That's important. I don't want to dismiss that. That's a role that we all have to deal with. But it might not have to do with learning or at least not have very much to do with learning. I, I should add one thing. I kept saying reteaching. I don't actually think that what you're doing is reteaching. I think usually what you're doing is trying to figure out a very specific thing that they don't yet know. So it's really teaching. It's it's usually looking at this and saying, we say it's Ollie's Pythagorean theorem unit. Students are really able to handle it when A and B are given and C is what they're finding, but they're making all these mistakes when, it, when the hypotenuse is given and one of the legs is given and one of the legs is missing. Or maybe it's all cases where it's a very weird looking triangle and they don't know which side is the longest. Or maybe it's all cases where it's the Pythagorean theorem, but in a larger, more complicated problem. So usually my approach to feedback is to look at their assessments. I go as short as I can, given the constraints in my life, though it's not always possible. But I go as short as an assessment as I can, try to figure out as specifically as possible what they know and what they don't yet know. And then I try to teach, maybe with a worked example, what they don't yet know. And because I so often use worked examples, that's what for this kind of focused teaching, that's why it ended up in the book. Whereas there was a certain temptation earlier in my life to write a book about feedback, but instead I made it into a couple pages and then in my work examples book. So. <laughs> Great. But I love that. I love that idea. You know, there's two ways that feedback works. Either you, you use it to identify misconception, then you teach students something or a knowledge gap, or then you teach them something, or you do something that motivates them to go away and learn that thing for themselves like it's just such a simple you know framework for understanding how feedback works but it's so valuable so thanks for sharing of course big ideas the, the the last kind of section in your book you outline a whole set of big ideas and i wanted to touch on two of them today you've already talked about this first one a bit but i think it's just so important that i wanted to bring it up again and that is the same teaching principles look different in different contexts do you want to tell us any more about that well i felt this most acutely because i teach so I, I teach, in a, as I said, a private school where the same teachers are teaching third grade three, year three through year 12. But I also teach in a summer camp, a math camp in the summer for, for students who are very smart, very strong students who have not been given challenging math in their lives typically because of the schools, the academies that they've been 
in, you know, that, that they are in. That's a generalization, but it's it's often true in the camp. So I teach in different situations, year three, year 12, calculus, geometry proof, algebra, teaching kids to add nine plus seven in efficient ways. There's a lot of, and then, and, uh, and then I teach in kind of situations where I have different goals, right? We talked about goals at the very beginning of this thing. I have different goals in my summer camp math classes for students who are ready for more, but might not know what it means to do more math. And then I do in my class full of kids, you know, 12 children say who have feel beaten down by math and have never had a good experience. And they, you know, apologize in the beginning of the class by saying that they're dumb and there's classroom management issues and whatever. So I feel this acute, acutely in my, in my teaching life. I've also, I, I haven't bopped around schools as, as much as some people, but I've taught in a, you know, two different schools with very different contexts. One was a religious school that was only a high school. Uh, there were a lot of behavior problems. It was an all boys school. There was a lot of, I don't know, it was a very strange day. Also the schedule, it was, is I taught from like one ten to 6 PM every Every, every day. It's just, you know, so there, there's a lot of schools out there. And what I think I've found in my life is that if you can get to some truth, then you can apply that. It's, it's like Frankel's generalization thing, right? If you can get to a general principle, then you can apply that to different contexts, new contexts. If all you have is what you saw in an example, you're going to struggle to apply that particular thing to a, a different particular context. And that's what I'm kind of saying with the teaching truths also. If you can get to a generalization, you can apply that to many different contexts. You'll have, they'll look different in different places, but that's the way generalizations work. Whereas if you have a surface level understanding of something, then you can only apply it in one particular way. And that will work in sometimes and it won't. And it becomes more of a take it, leave it strategy. So that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about flexibility that comes from understanding the theoretical understanding. Mm. Next big idea is, and this is the final one we'll talk about before the closing questions. Researchers and teachers need each other. Tell, tell us about this, Michael. Well, teachers need researchers in a certain sense. There's lots of great teachers who don't encounter research. So the sense in which teachers need researchers is loose. Researchers need teachers in a loose sense also, <laughs> because, you know, researchers could go about their lives and they don't need teachers either, right? They can, they can, they can research teaching and learning in contexts that have nothing to do with the classroom. They don't have to check in. There's lots of successful researchers who have done that. So saying that they need each other is maybe more like it's great if they could need each other. Something special does happen when researchers and teachers interact. Researchers, well, teachers will recognize, well, uh, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say the case for teachers needing research is there's a lot of great things you can learn from research. That's a pretty straightforward case. Researchers need teachers, though, because all the things that we've discussed in this podcast, most of them go beyond the research itself. Most of the things we've discussed are attempts to now a fairly common idea is that researchers need teachers to put it into action and teachers know how to apply research to their own situations. So there's a pretty common idea that I think everybody recognizes that you can't just take research and tell teachers to do it. Teachers you need to figure it out. What I think is often less recognized is that there's some interesting things that you might even think of as research E that teachers can do that researchers can't do as well. There's generalizations that may seem like they make a lot of sense from a researcher's perspective, but they don't, they need to be reformulated. Uh, this has come up a couple times where I felt like in my own life, you've, you've called these kind of like important 
like, I don't know, summaries or rephrases or ways of making things more succinct. To me, that's theoretical work that I can do because I'm not talking to other researchers where, where we have these kind of big shared theories that we can all talk about. We're talking in our kind of common sense teacher theories, much more down to earth theories, and you can assume less theoretical background. So we're trying to make sense of this with far fewer theoretical tools. So there's important theoretical work that teachers, I think, have to do if we're going to make sense of this stuff as a profession so that other people can understand it. It's not just about, from my point of view, it's not just about, you know, explaining the ideas of researchers, researchers, you know, in accessible terms. It is about kind of chewing on them and kind of spitting them out in a slightly different form that will kind of be more theoretically apt for classroom teachers. So I think there's some theoretical work that we're doing too. That's one of the ways in which I think researchers and teachers are a little bit more codependent than we sometimes think, especially for, uh, well, potentially, because I think it'd be great if we could have kind of this kind of conversation, but also kind of, I think, practically, that a lot of these research ideas become, they, they progress when teachers get their hands on them. Mm, taking it beyond. Good stuff. Some 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 closing questions, Michael. What advice would you give to your first year teacher self? Well, I don't know. I thought about this before the podcast, and I I, I I'm so bad at giving advice to other people. I'm no better giving advice to myself. I, I just don't have a good answer. What advice would I give myself? So many things. It's okay to leave a school. <laughs> you will get better at this thing. Keep reading. I don't really think that I could have sped up my learning trajectory a, a tremendous amount. So I don't, I don't, I don't feel bad about my first couple of years the way some people do. I don't feel ashamed of them. I wasn't very good, but I was trying very hard, and I think I was learning as much as I could. So I would just be supportive. If I if I could see my first my first year teacher self, I'd just be, it's going okay, it's gonna be fine. Just keep doing it. Don't go to grad school. That's keep doing the teacher thing. Don't don't jump ship. I would just try to be reassuring. <laughs> that's good. No, no self-explanation prompts you'd give to your first year teacher self. Oh, that's a good idea, right? Like, but I was, I was reflecting so much. Is the thing I was really thinking very hard. I just wasn't thinking well, so I, I needed time to work through that. No problem. No problem. Three favorite tweeters, Michael. I can't do that. I can't. I can't name my three favorite tweeters. I just can't. I love all the people who tweet equally. Every person on Twitter. No, well, there's there's a lot of people who do great things, but it's so hard for me to say. I love Katarina's geometry puzzles. I don't remember the her. Do, do, do you know her handle offhand? No, I can't remember. no, I don't. Well, we'll dig it up. I love people who share math. I love people like you who share research ideas. I I have a hard time. I, I the most I could say is my favorite categories of Twitter people, which are uh, people who, who who tweet about education in humble, curious ways. That's a whole category of people who tweet about mathematics in humble, curious ways and people who tweet about literally anything that they're interested in, in humble, curious ways. Uh, I don't like, I, I don't do well with overconfidence, but I do love people who are interested in learning and, and asking questions together. So that's, is that an okay non-answer? That's, that, that's that good. Right? That's good. I got some oh, good stuff great. out of that. Okay. Okay. Three favorite education books. Again, Running into big problems. I, I'm not good with favorites, but here because I because I'm not a total coward. What I will tell you, these are not my favorite education books, but these are the books that when I was writing my own book, I thought, 
hey, I'd like my book to be a little bit like this for various reasons. So so I'll, I'll, I'll start with this. We talked about Craig Barden. I, I love this book. How I Wish I Taught Maths. How I Wish I Taught Maths. I love it. He's a model for me of combining teacher knowledge and just the things you know from teaching with research. So I thought about his book a lot when I was writing mine because I admire. There's not a lot of examples of classroom teachers who do that. You do it also. There's not a ton. So um, so I really admire classroom teachers who, who think about putting research and teaching together. This is, you know, the thing about like the same teaching principles look different in different contexts. Alana Horn is a professor of education at Vanderbilt. She wrote a book about motivation called Motivated. And what I love about that book is that it is a professor who is doing that, who's saying that the same research ideas are going to look different in different contexts. I think that's a tremendously powerful idea that uh, is often missed. And she does that in the book. I don't agree with everything in the book. I don't agree with everything in any book. But I love that her book does that. So I thought about that. I thought about Lonnie Horn's writing all the time when I was writing this book. I embarrassed myself by cutting some of the citations of her, even though I thought about her book all the time when I was reading. So I want to I want to correct that slightly here by saying how much that book influenced me in its structure. OK, Marilyn Burns. Do you know who Marilyn Burns is? No, no. She she was a tremendously important person in like progressive math education in America over several decades, the 80s, the 90s. She just wrote a ton of books, uh, mostly for elementary, some middle school math. She's, from my point of view, one of the best writers of classroom dialogues and like classroom learning and math classes out there. So as a teacher writing about teaching, she's one of my writing role models. I think she's also a great task designer. She writes, she's got a lot of things that I that I use all the time. I, I, the book of hers that I use, it's like a very specific Marilyn Burns recommendation out of her larger work, but her, uh, you know, lessons on fractions I really like. I just, I use it all the time in my teaching. And I think about that book because it's writing about teaching. So I share with you not my favorite books, not the books that I agree with everything. I don't agree with everything in Craig's book. I don't agree with everything in Alana Horn's book. I don't agree with everything that Marilyn Burns writes. These are, that's not, I don't agree with most things, right? That's the way being a person is. But these are three writers that I really admire so that's what that's what these recommendations are really there it's 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 good it's good teach uh, teaching writing mm, that's wonderful what are you excited about at the moment michael well i've been on parental leave for a couple of weeks with my baby i've gotten two doses of pfizer's vaccine as a teacher in new york state so uh i had been like biking to work it's a really long bike ride from my apartment to avoid the subway earlier this year because i've been teaching in person I'm going to take the subway when I go back to work next week. And that gives me time to read. I mean, there's not there's not everything about being on the subway is great, but I'm I'm that, I'm excited to go back to work and be able to take the train and not feel like maybe I'm going to, you know, catch catch something I shouldn't be catching. I'm excited intellectually to to think more about self-explanation in my teaching. I still think that there's more there that I that I don't understand. I'm excited to talk about this book because I've never written a book before. Now I have, and I get to talk about it with people like you, and it's and it's fun. It's 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 fun. So I'm excited about that, and I guess that's it. That's it. I hope I'm excited for winter to end. It's been a long winter here in New York City. It hasn't been easy. Parent of young kids, teacher, winter, deadly pandemic. It's it's been a bad mix this winter. But it's we're getting close to spring, and I I'm excited about spring. I'm hopeful. Hope spring is eternal, and it does for me also. 
I'm getting kind of loopy at the end of this conversation, but but, but I'm ex- I'm excited for spring. Hundred percent. Final question, Michael. Any last calls to action or things you'd like listeners to go to, away today and do? Well, they should do whatever they want. But but if anybody wants to get in touch with me, I would love that. I love talking about all these things. So so if you want to talk about this stuff, you can see I I like Ali and I had a great time talking about this. So if you like talking about it, get in touch. I like talking about this stuff too. Well, Michael Pershing, thank you so much for your time today. It's It's been late for you and, and you mentioned all the contextual factors you're existing within. We, we started the podcast with a, a, your baby crying in the background, so it's been a, a big day and a big night. But as, as you also mentioned, it's been really, really enjoyable discussion for me and and sounds like for you too. A few, a few kind of takeaways. One, I think that as much as anyone else I've I've met, you really exemplify a teacher who has adaptive expertise. And by that, I mean someone who has a really, really solid understanding of principles and a flexibility and, and enough of a mastery of them to work out how they work in different contexts. That's something I definitely aspire to myself. And it's something I'd encourage the, a level of understanding I'd encourage all teachers to, to aspire towards. So that's the first thing I wanted to mention. The second thing is that you, you talked about in terms of your favorite education books, the ones you mentioned were books in which you thought the writer did, to summarize, a really, really good job of, of communicating things in easily understandable terms. And so I, I just wanted to congratulate you for your own book because I thought it was you know, it really hooked me in. And I read the first three chapters or so in one sitting. And and I thought it was, as I mentioned, just a fantastic summary of the research in really, really clear terms. And I could also say, I would, the your book probably made the biggest single change to my teaching practice that any, any book has. Like, I really think that this worked examples approach is just so powerful for teachers. And I feel like it's just, I'm just feeling so much more confident in the classroom in front of my classes with this approach. So I've just got to thank you for that and acknowledge the impact that it's had. And the third, th- third and final thing I wanted to talk about, and this is the phrase that you just introduced when you're talking about tweet is there and the ones that you like, y- you mentioned that you really like following people who exemplify humility and curiosity. And, and I'd like to really acknowledge that more than anyone, um, I see you as someone who's incredibly humble about kind of the intellectual capacity that you have and, and the am- amazing ability you have to synthesize ideas and to have, have incisive insights and your insatiable curiosity drives you forwards and is a constant inspiration for me. So, thank you for being such a great contributor to this space, Michael, and it's been a great chat today and I look forward to having more of them. Thank you, Ali. This was a great conversation. I had so much fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Each Our Podcast with Michael Pershing. As always, you can find show notes with links to all the resources that were mentioned at ollilovell.com, inclusive of links to the John Cat website. And remember that code ERRR30 for 30% off any book from John Cat. Please share this episode with friends and colleagues if you got something out of it. And if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like, you'd like to hear on the Each Our Podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other each of our episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week and until next time, keep learning.